Hello, audience. Here is the warm-up period. I have a friend who, um, like two months into his Iraq deployment, we were in the same unit. I didn't know him at the time. But him and his wife were having difficulties. He got pulled back to try to help her and then got put on rear D. And that's all he did for all the guys we sent back home. He did all that that. kind of stuff. And so, you know, you think of the people that, like, listen to even that that episode of us just kind of yakking at each other. And instantly he's... Like, if I'm tracking right on the website, like, this guy's listening to the website, I think, or listen to the podcast every day this week. Yeah. Like, I really, I'm really sure that's him. And I'm just like, man, how impactful that, like, like, he's just waiting for us to sit down and do something, talk to somebody, right? I want to yeah. keep soaking it in because he didn't get to do everything he wanted to do. Uh, I don't, he did funeral detail for his own? For the, his own unit because he was part of the rear D. Oh, God. You know, Nick got put on a casualty notification <laughs> officer uh, duty I, roster, too. I saw that on Facebook. He kind of got a scare one night. I went through the training for it. I mean, what a cruel, you know, un- unintentionally cruel thing to do. Yeah, I, that's so emotionally heavy, like, especially your, your own unit, like, yeah. the pe- man. And then you're going to see your fellow soldiers, family members, like, that's yep. that's rough. I saw a, saw a Gold Star uh, license plate, like, just a day or two ago, and, you know, not many people... I think recognize what that is like the blue service star and the gold service star. Um, it's just like, that's another one of those things that I can't relate to. That just must be just impossible. You know, and I'm, there was a, I was visiting friends in, in the house I went to, or the house, the, the town I went to high school in just over a weekend in July, a couple years ago. And, just kind of bumming around town on a Sunday or something like that, uh, and I saw a flag flying a, like a or a, a house flying. Uh, a a flag with, you know, more than one star on it, and one of them was gold, and I just can't imagine like, like on top of that, you know, and it's just, the Pandora's box of all these different experiences that, would be challenging to relate to even from a, a someone inside that world, mm-hmm. but just like what is that family's experience like, and how do you like if your brother, you know, if that gold star is for your brother, and you're sitting there doing whatever, how do you pick your feet up and put them down and keep moving forward like day after day after day? Well, it's like that's PTSD in a nutshell. Is that you, like you have the experience, and then you have a fear of the re-experience, and like imagine the family has the experience, and they still got a couple of people serving oh. and still in, and yeah, fight or die, huh? Then you. <laughs> Well, then beyond that, looking into like Save It Private or Saving Private Ryan. Sullivan, like, yeah. You, know, you, you think know. of that whole movie, like that Ranger platoon that had to go through a Ranger squad and all the went through just to get that one dude out of country. It's mm-hmm. that that's the dedication to the mission because that one person. At Fire. Lots to take in. Yeah. We were doing a firefighter safety training, sort of um, those modules to get this session started. And it's, uh, you know, risk a lot to save a lot. But, you know, the converse is also true so risk a little to save a little yeah. um, and just thinking about like a down firefighter you gotta send like four guys in to get that guy out and then like I'm sitting there we're talking about this stuff and I started thinking about like that scene from Full Metal Jacket those sniper TTPs like you know the the bad guys in Iraq doing the the secondary debt stuff you know it's like mm, yeah I hated that just <laughs> yeah yeah how do we address you? Do I have to salute you? You're an army officer and a marine officer. If I what? <laughs> if I misunderstand no, you, you misunderstood. <laughs> yeah, if I misunderstand you intentionally correctly, right? <laughs> no, marine corps officer. I spent a couple minutes in the army before I 
Oh, so you were like enlisted and then you went commissioned in the Marines? Yes. Oh. Yep. So you I got did. smart. Exactly. Tell us more. What did you like? Start dating the one brother and meet the other brother and be like, well, all right, well, fuck, here, time to switch. It's a little the wrong one to start with. A little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. I, I don't even know how your last name's pronounced. Eisenstein. I will Eisenstein? fuck that up. Eisenstein. 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 Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna mess that up. I, I sincerely. Yeah appreciate that correction if you say the i correctly everything else will follow but i said i think i said i sensei so i was like putting i i sensei i will respond to that too it's actually, it's actually my husband's last name so i'm cool oh yeah fuck yeah. Him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> call her natalie Rubaki. yeah who knows so <laughs> we'll probably ask that ask it again but uh did I you sensei. have to change names while you're serving um i chose to so I got. Uh, don't that's a thing. That. That's okay. the, that's no, a but like, thing. I don't have to fucking worry about that. Like, no. Like I was the same guy the whole time. It's not like one day I showed up and I was like, "What? It, Who the fuck is this guy?" I think people it, should wear name tapes. Could you, I, like, could I, you just changed, I just changed the name tapes, and it wasn't too bad because I did it while I was at school before I hit the fleet. Gotcha. So when I got to the fleet, it was new. I, it was Eisenhower. Yeah, Eisenhower. Yeah. No, okay, so you know it's weird though is you can still see the face. Yeah, but like, what if you put it? Do you know how in the so the art in my military unit? If you the showed up, tree stuff right there. If one day your name was Washington, what was that? And the next day your name was Smith, you'd get fucking dropped. You wouldn't even get asked questions. You'd be like, "All right, push," because you clearly put on somebody else's shit. Next time you do, like, all the assumptions people would have made. Like, you're lazy. You put on your roommate's shit. You're all dicked up. Like, Listen, you wouldn't have I, got a chance to explain yourself until you're sweating. I was an officer at school. It was fine. I, like, yeah, it was. Again, I'm, I, don't, I don't understand rational thinking. Like service and <laughs> rational thinking didn't combine for me. No, and I think that's that's a part of this whole conversation is just how different it all is. Well, do we think we want to start? Is everybody warmed up? Anybody else need some cough drops or vitamin C? Can I just say that I was super surprised that iTunes actually looked into the music. Like I honestly thought they'd be like whatever. I wonder if it's natural because there's nowhere else this music is hosted. Maybe it could be found on YouTube, but like um, this band hasn't produced who's, their EB or uh, their yeah, whose music is it? It's so um, kind of in the frame. I think of the whole thing is like combat vets, and so this band called Bring Down the Sky, their drummer, lead singer, and rhythm guitarist are all combat vets. Oh. Um, last year, the, the spring, I think their bassist just came back from basic and AIT, and their uh, lead guitarist is in the army band. Hmm. Wow! And so they're all serving or have served. And so, like, they kind of fucking rock. I mean, I think the music's pretty good, at least. It's maybe a little intense, but I think it's okay. I think it's good. Well, I didn't want to have, like, the Fight or Die f- f- podcast to open with a fucking banjo or something. Wait, what does Will listen to? What do you listen to? Everything. A little oh. bit of everything. But yeah. some banjo music features prominently. I need you to back up that, homie. I'm already defend you there, Will. <laughs> yeah, I'm like... Sounds awfully judgmental of you. Like, a little bit of Americana. Michael Bolton, like the singer? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I actually call me Mike. I love that guy. <laughs> so just so you know, I have a friend who is currently deployed. You have a friend. Who I know, right? <laughs> uh, who uh, was interested in doing it while she was deployed. And then... I never got to do it while I was deployed. <laughs> no, that's true. I don't get to do this podcast. All the so when, when does she come back? When does she redeploy? Uh, she'll come back in like May of next year. Heck of a jump she got on this deployment. It's not May of this year yet. So yeah, she's on a she's on a long one. How long has she been gone already? Oh, it's been a couple months now. Yeah, she's yeah. done like 15 nineteen months. months. Yeah, that's like a PCS. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. 
So the potential was interview her while she's there, and then when she comes back, it's like a rebound. I got a, I got a buddy whose halfway mark is coming up on March fifteenth, and then it's like as soon as they cut him loose, I'm like, you have you have a date, (laughs) Unasitaki. You're gonna be right there, and we're gonna be like so. But she was on MySpace. Ah, I remember MySpace. She did that. What was that show? Thought before. Uh, (coughs) She had like a dating show. Before they had those. Did yeah. you say thought? I did. Is that not how it's pronunciated? I mean, I think so. Thought, but like Thought. I don't know. I have to admit, I don't even know what a thought is. It's a... What? <laughs> Natalie, tell us about yourself. <laughs> like, this, like, this is a great time to do some exposition. <laughs> like, we are... None of us is cool. Unfortunately, like, we're Blow really good whistle. people. Blow and, the whistle. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Fight or Die podcast. This is your host, Adam Howarth, joined by your co-host, Will Atkinson and Karen Blakely. We are excited. We've got our first guest in the studio tonight. We are going to be talking to Natalie Isensi. How are you doing, Natalie? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. I think we're better. Wait, did you get her last name right? I have no idea. That's, That's why you're me at the very end get a little nervous. <laughs> Natalie, yeah. say your name. <laughs> Natalie Isensi. Isensi. Golly, uh, I said it the old way. You're good. You're the good. old way. The old way that I always memorized it in my head okay. before I'm like, I, oh. should we ask this person to be on the show? Oh, yeah. Like as I Facebook stalked this person's history about like, they this we have to talk to her. She's got a story. We need to hear it. Okay, go. <laughs> I have no prep at all. <laughs> I don't think you need to stalk very hard. I think you just go to my page and just scroll, right? Fair game. So to lease off, though, catch us up, like, uh, you know, what when were you in the military? What branches? What did you do? You know, and we'll, we'll build from there. Sure. Um, I served in the Marine Corps. I was uh, got out as a captain. I served on active duty from 2000 to 2005. Um, but before that, I spent a little bit of time in the Army Reserves and then did some training for the Marine Corps before 2000. So did you have to get trained up in, uh, like, a job specialty with the Army before? Or, you know, what did that look like the time before you even joined officially with the I Marine Corps? I did. I uh, graduated from high school and then went to basic training for the Army and then did uh, my freshman year of college. And I did Army ROTC during that year as well. And I was uh, drilling with the reserve unit in Indiana. And then I went to AIT the next summer. Um, and I was a 63 Juliet quartermaster in chemical equipment repair. And then... Oh, wait, chemical? Wait a minute. Wait, where'd you go to basic? Uh, Fort Jackson, Fort South, Jackson. Carolina, okay. South Carolina. What, is, what do you mean chemical repair? What does that mean? Uh, chemical equipment repair. So like smoke machines. The Army has smoke mm. machines that you could create fog. What? Yeah, yeah I, I, I can speak to that. Like, uh, So part of my active time was at the National Training Center. It's so like one of the big things you do in a cavalry unit is you'll send like a smoke truck through. It's kind of like a lay down a smoke screen kind of thing. And then you can move a large element through that smoke screen. Ah. And so it'll help with eyesight, line of sight. It'll help with laser sighting and things like that. But, like, you, <laughs> well, the funny part is this. It's not a combat arms MOS. It's just, like, you get to go to school, like, hey, this is how this equipment works. This is how nuclear, biological, chemical stuff is. <laughs> By the way, one thing you may not know about is you're going to have to drive out in front of everything else <laughs> and help them move behind your cover. So, what, what point did you find out that was a part of the job? Um, it was not part of the job, so I was. Oh, <laughs> not so it was fast. not actually using the equipment; it was repairing the equipment. So it was, a, it was a maintenance function. Gotcha. So repairing um, ten horsepower engines and 
big water pumps. I didn't know washing you. Washing machines. You had like it's like small injury and small, small injury, injury repair. repair. Yeah. That's exactly what I, I had no idea you had that technical background. Yes. I didn't know that you could pump pump it up. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> oh joke. That's pretty good. Yeah. No, yep. I mean you made it. I've worked on that for a while. <laughs> So like clearly you're just, <laughs> you get through this school and you're just like, you, this is not what we'll do anything. <laughs> I was not super engaged at that particular school. Um, but my plan all along was to become an officer. So that was always my goal. So I, um, actually when I was in high school, I wanted to go to one of the service academies, um, West Point or Annapolis. And then, uh, but that ended up not working out because my eyes are pretty bad. So I enlisted in the army reserves, um, with the intention of going through ROTC to become an officer, and I would do the reserves as a part-time job. Um, so I finished up AIT, went back to college for another semester of ROTC, but then that's when I found out that uh, the Army was not interested in giving me a medical waiver for my eyes. So I went over to the Marine Corps officer recruiter and told him my story and said, I'm very interested in getting commissioned I'm willing to work pretty hard for it. Um, so I applied for the Marine Corps officer program. I got accepted to that program and then uh, got a medical waiver for my bad eyes. And that's when I was released from the Army Reserves and I made the switch over to the Marine Corps officer program. And that's when I stopped doing Army ROTC. Was there a point like as a kid that you knew that you were going to join the military? I mean, exploring a couple branches, like some of the career paths, thinking about the academies and things like that. You know, in your childhood... Was there ever a clue that you knew, or maybe when did you know the military was going to be a thing for you? Uh, I decided my freshman year of high school. I read um, a book called The Long Gray Line. It was about the West Point class of 1966. And that particular class, it, along with kind of the year before and the year after, that those, those graduates who became second lieutenants in the Army, almost all of them went over to serve in Vietnam. And, uh, and, and that was their story, and I thought that was, that inspired me. And I thought that going to one of the academies was a pretty great um, chance to combine leadership and academics and then the, the physical fitness requirements. Um, the academies didn't work out, and so I, w I started pursuing all the other routes, um, including ROTC. But uh, again, my, I've got bad eyes. And so yeah. that was kind of the, the thing I had, to f I had to find my way into a program where they acknowledged I had bad <laughs> eyes, but they were okay with it. And that program happened to be the, the Marine Corps. So landing that waiver was a pretty big deal. It was huge. And you had to... I worked, I worked long and hard to, to, to get that medical waiver. How many no's did you get before you got... Well, I, several? Yeah. I was... Yes. I got... Yes. Um, well, West Point, Annapolis, Air Force Academy. Um, oh, you tried all the branches. I tried all the branches. The oh, Coast Guard wow. said, no, thank you. The Merchant Marine Academy. I said no before they could say no to me. And then uh, Navy ROTC, Army ROTC, and then the Marine Corps Officer Program accepted me. So what was it that was like all of a sudden like they were going to accept you? What was the difference? Uh, there was a there was a clerical error. Bank error, your favor. Bank error, yes. my favor. <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> we shall speak no more about so, this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so there was a there was a female officer candidate before me who applied for that same medical waiver. They they gave it to her, 
And then someone recognized that they gave it to this other candidate and said, well, if you gave it to her, you need to give it to Natalie, too. It's, oh, my God. It's only that's fair. awesome. That's like the biggest kid excuse I've ever heard pay off. It's like, well, he did it, too. Did so, you ever find her and thank her? I, she didn't. She <laughs> she declined the program. She didn't even what? go through it, right? <sighs> but it, for me, it was kind of the, the example of there was a Marine Corps officer. He was a major. He knew me. I didn't know him. But he found that, and he found fought long and hard to get me that medical waiver. Wow, oh, that's awesome. cool. And I thought, wow, because he, he kind of punched the door open, and then um, the feedback was, you got into OCS, and now it's kind of on you. So then I did OCS that summer in Quantico, Virginia, and then I did another year of college, and then I went back for the second half of OCS, um, graduated from that, from OCS, and then had to finish my last year of college. So I graduated and then got commissioned, graduated from UW-Madison, and then got commissioned the next day. What were your transitions like from being a student to going to training? Was it tough for you to keep up physically or mentally switch gears, or how did um, you experience that? It was it, it was uh, it was not great. So I like for I went to graduated from high school, went to basic training, and then graduated basic training, and then that the next I think two days later I was at college with with a bunch of girls in a dorm room. Um, and I, yeah, I found the transition to be that one in particular was really difficult to go to be a college student after I just spent the whole summer, um, you know. But you were 19, 20, those were your age mates, peers otherwise? Yes. What was so different? Just just the intensity level or? Uh, yeah, so the intensity level, I was ready to get up at five o'clock in the morning and start my day. Um, it also, <laughs> so I was not a great roommate. My roommate did, not, did not appreciate me at all. Um, I, I it irritated me to no end at the very first meeting of the students as we're in the dorm, kind of the welcome to college meeting. They, they called us girls. And I was like, listen, I just spent my summer learning how to kill people. Right. right. Yeah. I went through the bayonet course twice because yeah. I thought it was really fun. So <laughs> thanks. Um, but I, I ended up making a lot, a lot of friends in ROTC and friends at the reserve unit that I served at. So that, that was really good. Um, but after I went to... OCS the first time. They split it into two summers. Um, I finished that up and did a year of college. And then I started having nightmares in January or February in preparation for going to, to OCS. So I started having nightmares. And uh, when I went back to OCS, I was so relieved that the nightmare stopped because I was back. Oh, wow. And it was, uh, but that's not healthy, right? That's not, that's not good either. Oh, it was man. Hard. It's a sign, I think, though. It's like, uh, you know, one of the bigger reintegration problems, I think, is like pe- folks come back from deployments and if they stay in their unit, they have uh, less outcomes of, of PTSD, et cetera. And, but people who come out right away have higher rates of PTSD. So I think the idea is you just needed to get back with your family again. Uh, in a, yeah, in a, yes. So as soon as I showed up, um, yeah, I could I could remember my accommodation to my lock and I, my friends were still there and uh, some of them were still there, but. Just imagine how many times in life you're in the wrong room. You're just sitting in the wrong room. You don't even know it. You're anxious. Things aren't going well. You're mad at yourself. You think it's all your fault until you get to that other room and all of a sudden you feel that sense of relief come over. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you got to that part. You know, thinking thinking even in way back before college and stuff like that, you know, a lot of folks like me, you know, I, I've, 9-11 happened, didn't have a lot of opportunity. It sounds like you were pretty inspired to join you know, what was your upbringing like that set you up for that? You know, what was your childhood like? Some people, I had this one friend who like, maybe, maybe this was a bad sign, but he always drew like army things, people shooting each other. And I was like, well, that's terrifying, but this person's probably going to join the military. And they did become Marine. I was like, good, 
All right, we're safe. But like, <laughs> you know, at what point, you know, how did, how did it shape up for you? How did, you know, how, how did it move into that freshman year where you've had that moment? Um, so I'm, I'm number two out of five kids. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and uh, it always kind of felt like we grew up in a, in a crowd, which was nice. But we, my parents um, would take us on family vacations. What I'll it. I know you just gotta do it. You just gotta be here. You should have just yeah. That was what has that? Oh my goodness! Refreshing can of Dr Pepper. Yeah, you've never drank twenty three Dr Peppers. Thirty one flavors. Never even achieved Forrest Gump status. Sorry about that. Five family members. Yeah, yeah. Five five siblings. Daisy Cutter Pale Ale brought to you by. You gotta lean in here. Looking for sponsors. Nutrition. I think it's like Revolution Brewing or something. It's somewhere in Chicago. Anyway, I was number two out of five. Yeah, um, we. Uh, my parents would take us to the military open houses, like Mitchell Field. We went there a couple times and saw whatever aircraft was in town. We'd go visit um, Navy ships when we were happened to be at the same place where there are Navy ships. Um, and then uh, I was pretty interested in military history, so I kind of read read a lot of military history and. Uh, um, I kind of read, read read whatever books are laying around the house. That's cool. That's a relief for somebody who was enlisted to know that like you probably got to where you were supposed to be, you know. And and I, and I don't know my officer stories and things like that. There was a couple that were pretty pretty stellar. And, you know, I think the hope is that maybe they have the same path. It was just like that was their destiny. That was where they're supposed to be. It, it felt like it. It's exactly what I wanted to do. And it was I worked I worked very very hard to to get commissioned um, and to. I was pretty motivated by the possibility of, of leading Marines. That was um, a huge motivator. The, the moment you found out it was going to happen, the moment you got the waiver and it was like official, what was that like? It was incredible. So it was, uh, it was February, um, and it happens to be the actually the same day that I met my now husband. Hmm. Um, so it was the, the day we met. Um, and so I, I found out I get the waiver from a phone call from the recruiter. And then uh, I called up some friends of mine from the, the from Purdue, which is where I transferred from, um, and they said you gotta you gotta come down to come celebrate with us because we we were awesome. with you for this whole thing. Did they order a bunch of boilermakers? <laughs> uh, no. I mean, it's a fair question. I mean, come on, Purdue. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I forgot to tell you when I switched from the Army program to the Marine Corps program, I also transferred colleges. I transferred from Purdue up to UW Madison. Go Badgers! Yes. And then when you got up here, did they teach you how to bucky? <laughs> oh, was, I think that was actually uh, after my time. Hmm. So OCS, and then. <laughs> <laughs> so so I was I was uh, I was thrilled that I got that medical waiver. I was. Um, that was February was of two thousand. Of ninety eight. Ninety eight. Oh, so you're you're still doing your training stuff and. Yep. So it was my sophomore year of college. So I found out I got the medical waiver. And then uh, I realized, oh, I gotta go, I have to go to OCS. So I went to the gym and mm-hmm. I started working out again. And uh, yeah, just kind of prepared for OCS that way. Yeah, how long is OCS? I feel like it's long. I, I did the program where it was two six-week summers. Oh, you could okay. either do one one ten-week summer or two six-week summers. And I did the two six weeks. Where'd you have to go? Quantico, Virginia. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah I think you mentioned that. Yeah. What do you think of Virginia? Uh, I didn't see much of it. Just uh, some barracks rooms. And 
<laughs> PT track <laughs> or something? <laughs> the hills of Quantico, mostly. Hills of Quantico. Yeah, so there's a parade deck, and there's a chow hall, and there's uh, some classrooms, and then there's uh, trails. What do they teach you at OCS? PowerPoint? Uh, so much PowerPoint. There was some PowerPoint. Excel? So, no Excel. No? No. Did you come out with a Microsoft certification? <laughs> I'm not sure what you think happens at OCS. <laughs> we, I think you know it's weird. We have no idea. So you don't know. You don't know. Oh, there are no computers. I feel like this is the scene in Monty Python when they're like, but but does she float? What if she floats? And like, the logical person standing above being like, well, if a duck floats. Tis so a silly that, place. <laughs> so the whole purpose of OCS is to, is to to train you to see if you're qualified to be trained to be a Marine Corps officer. And so um, the... The dropout rate was pretty high. Oh, really? How high was it? Um, so in, in my group for the the women, I forget the numbers, but it's something like we started off with 50-some, 50, 55 women in my platoon. Um, and we graduated 35. And then for the next summer, um, six people came back. There were six of us that came back. Of the 35? Of the 35 that graduated, six came back. Six people came back. Yes, and wow. I was one of them. Holy crap. Because everyone else, they all said, uh, no, no thank you. And this was 1998, 1999? Yes. And female cohorts to become uh, Marine officers? Yes. And mm-hmm. what sort of job specialties would everyone eventually become? Uh, for my group... Um, the branches that were open to the MOSs that were open to women were um, you could be a pilot, you could do logistics, you could do air intelligence, um, communications. And so, what did you choose? I chose logistics. Cool. So, after I got commissioned, I went on active duty, and that's why I went to the basic school which is a six-month-long school for all Marine Corps officers in Quantico. And that qualifies you to be a Marine infantry platoon commander? It gives you those skills at least? It gives you those skills. So if you think of every Marine as a rifleman, every Marine Corps officer is can be a rifle platoon commander. Cool. And so it's a six-month-long school where you learn how to be a rifle platoon commander. And then based on that, at that school, based on your class rank, you choose your MOS. So what were your impressions of the basic course? Uh, I was ecstatic to be on active duty and to be out of college and to be hanging out with some some fantastic people. Um, so the people were great. Um, the school was very, very difficult. Um, we were in the field for a good chunk of the time, um, carrying a pack, going out patrolling. What made it difficult? You know, for some, I can imagine everybody's got to, whether it was the weather, what was the attitude, what the work, you know, for you, what, what made it difficult? Um, it's physically challenging. So going out and carrying the same, I mean, you're carrying the same pack as everybody else. Everyone has the same, same load. So were, um, was this a mixed gender training now or was it still all female that you're going uh, through? This was mixed gender. So it was the first one was separated though, right? I thought you said all female. It was, we were a female platoon within a male company. Okay, so you guys did train Just together. segregated okay. living or, or? Segregated living. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I was in a squad bay with all women. But there is a, the, the, all the males were in kind of the separate, separate areas and we would see each other at the, at the training events. But it wasn't fully integrated. TBS is fully integrated. 
So it, there was a, in my platoon, there were four women. Each squad had one. Hmm. Um, so it's a lot of time out in the field. So you kind of go out to the field for a week and then come back and do classroom stuff and go back out to the field. And you rotate leadership roles and do peer evaluations. Um, there's academic components to it. That's when you go to the, the rifle range, rifle range, pistol range. You good shot? I am not. You're not a good shot? <laughs> I mean, I think uh, we already covered the Iceland. <laughs> they, they wave that to you? <laughs> Just kidding. I'm sorry. That was they, wave. <laughs> they wave that to you. Like, oh, you can shoot the close ones. I, <laughs> I qualified I qualified every time I needed to, but I am not I am not a fantastic shot. But um, it kind of even the worst shot in the Marine Corps is still pretty good. Oh, yeah. It's kind of how it goes. Well, I was thinking more like, but like when you bring up the eyesight again, was there ever an opportunity to m- just memorize the chart on the wall? Because like I will admit, I haven't memorized to this point to the today. Oh my god! Are you serious? F E L O P Z D and Def Potec is the one below that. T E F P O T E K. How much would I you guess panic I should have learned that even high school. It. Like there's many DMVs I pulled a fast one on just because of that. Like there's many physicals I've gotten past because I've just memorized those two. I was like, I'm not even playing around with the eyesight problem. I'll be honest with you; it never occurred to me. I don't know how. I don't know how much that says about (laughs) (laughs) what? What? Come on, commitment to the. It's just strategizing your way. (laughs) I would have loved it if they updated the list so you got up there and you're rattling it off. What the fuck are you saying right now? But there's always a chance when you get in the room to like give it a peek, right? And really quickly, just be like, I'm gonna memorize 2020 because they're probably gonna start right around there, and I'll not be able to read the next one. And they make all your eyesight just perfectly. Listen, if they call my bluff, good for you. Do your job. That's got to be a mo- yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're just like quick motivation check. Like, yeah. all right, guy, how seriously do you take your job? <laughs> <laughs> well, even in shooting, like I remember in basic training, like I went to Benning, it was hotter than crap, but they had one of those pop-up ranges, and I'm not sure if yours had I, that. Well, I had that when I was in the army. And so there was times like you could be the best shot alive, but it was so hot that the penetration wouldn't register on the target. Oh yeah. And so those people who were like. They were getting kind of screwed with mentally because they were shooting just fine, but it wasn't registering. And the drills were overreacting, like making a big, big production of it and things like that until they the drills went down and finally shot on the range. And like, oh, yeah, it's broke. Oh, that would mess you up. I tell you, what, though, when I, I learned how to how to shoot in the Army, um, of course, on the rifle range. And then when I went over to the Marine Corps, the instruction was it was a lot more intense. And it was yeah. there was a lot more of it. Um, and it was... Uh, there's just a lot more of it. And I kept thinking, like, if I had known this when I was the yeah. first time I learned how to shoot, that would have been useful. There's a mentality, I think, like in the, the Marine Corps versus maybe some other branches um, that they really do take the idea of riflemen very seriously. Is oh, that, yes. You know, everybody, every Marine is a rifleman first. Yes. And so it, would, it would, wouldn't surprise me that they would maybe take that a little bit seriously at that point. Yes, it was it was, in, it was incredibly serious. So range week, which is longer than a week. Um, <laughs> Army uh, math, military math. Love like, the Marine Corps. <laughs> explicitly Marine math, yeah. Um, it, was, it was really challenging. So you hump out to the range and then uh, do grass drills and then you fire all day long and then you hump back. And every day the, the hump gets a little bit longer and the drills get a little more difficult. And, and, and then you do it again. non-veteran listeners, humping means walking with a backpack on. <laughs> A.K.A. Rucky. For, for once, we're being serious and sincere and not making a dirty joke. Humping the hills. That's what it is, though. So that's what made TBS hard, too, is all the humping. So, Like, how, how would your husband respond to that if you didn't know? And it's like, yeah, me and this guy Brad went and humped 10 miles last night, or we humped for a half hour. 
So that was the beautiful thing about meeting him on the day I got accepted. From uh, <laughs> loophole. Mm-hmm. Did you Where? ever, when you were uh, at basic training shooting or any other time otherwise in the range, usually it's basic training jokes, but did they ever pull the prank asking, like, did the drills ask if somebody wanted to qualify? Koala. Like, hey, are you here to qualify? Because okay. anybody, I learned early on, you don't volunteer for shit. Like, you don't say oh, yes yeah. to anything. You're like, nope, I'm dumb. Leave me alone. Look the other way. So they obviously there's one in every group that's like, yeah, I know I want to qualify. I'm a hardcore person. And so they were like, all right, you're going to qualify. You had to go up to a tree, go upside down and hug the tree while being off the ground. And until you let go or passed out and then fell and hit your head on the ground and then you had qualified like a, a koala hazing. bear. That's a thing. What? That sounds like hazing. It's not. I mean. They seemed very endearing as they did it. Sounds like. <laughs> like of course no. they did. What? They were trying to trick you. No, nah, that was love. Yeah, that, was that was love. love. <laughs> Pure love. That's the drill sergeants love me. I'm sure they did. I never qualified, though. I was smart enough to be like, I don't believe this guy. Like, this, <laughs> it, it doesn't fit the setting that we're in right now. None of it makes sense. So you're at oh, uh, TBS, the basic school? Yes. Doing field infantry, infantry marine tasks. Yep. For six months. Yes. And your husband Chris, or your future husband Chris. Yes. Is he? He's back at. He was home in, station. Yes, he was in Wisconsin, working in Madison. And, uh, in the in the the basic school environment, what were uh, what are some of your fondest memories from that time? Like range week, I get was super challenging. Like what would the what was the atmosphere like? It certainly wasn't a gentleman's course or. Uh, favorite times during TBS. The, I'm trying to. <laughs> the day you left, I guess, is the vibe I'm getting. It was, uh, yeah, let me. Uh, we had a guy after Army basic training. He, this dude goes out. So, like, for some reason, everybody has to have a nickname you yell out loud whenever you come to position attention or something. And so, we were the dogs of war, second platoon. And so, after nine weeks of Army mixed MOS basic training, even though it was at Benning, This dude runs out on graduation day and on his forearm gets a dogs of war tattoo. (laughs) And like, man, Captain Hindsight, if there was just, if you go Captain Hindsight, we're just standing around, you would have been like, that is not your best decision yet. There's always one. Yeah. There's always one. At least one. I I will say some some of the highlights of TBS, um, when we were going out to the field, we always got to go in a helicopter. Oh, that's awesome. I it love was helicopters. awesome. And if a helicopter doesn't motivate you, then I don't know what to tell you. What? Yeah, I don't know. Um, so okay. that was... <laughs> like, I've been on two helicopter rides, <laughs> and I was like, I was good after that. No, start and was... finish. Like, I'm, no, I mean... No, I'm saying I... sometimes helicopter doesn't finish. Like, it'll start, but it won't finish. No guarantee the helicopter's going to land. Uh, yeah. Hey, that's that's a contract you sign when you get in. Yeah. Yep. And, and so... So that was cool. Um, I also... I. It, to be honest, I did like the I did like the rocking and the humping. I thought that was yeah. um, I enjoyed that. Um, yeah, there's something to it. It's like I don't know if it connects you to other generations because you know that like whatever hill you're walking up and as a part of your training, thousands if not millions of people have done this. It's like a rite of passage in some way, mm-hmm. shape, or form, and it's something you can take anywhere you go. All branches are kind of you know anybody that's got boots on the ground is doing that kind of stuff, and you know uh, I always enjoyed it too thoroughly. Yeah. Well, I got to tell I, you, Natalie and I are. We are, uh, she's a volunteer leader in Team RWB as well. And uh, her and I have spent a lot of time and a lot of miles rucking around. And it's been, you know, I think there are a number of different sorts of benefits you can get in addition to connecting with generations of previous military trainees. I think that 
it's a great way to process a lot of things. Oh, uh, totally. And slow, like slowing down and moving through the world on foot with all the things that you need secured to your back, supported by your body. Uh, I think that definitely gives you a little different perspective from which to think things through than just zip it around in your day to day, using mm-hmm. a car, watching the world go by. Like it's, it helps me get into a way different frame of mind, but mm-hmm. yeah, take it a step further, throw in your earbuds, listen to the fight or die podcast. Something. Yeah. I've definitely had some great conversations out there on the trails. Yeah. And I, you know, I enjoyed the, the, I think rucking has a competitive nature. Um, whether it's like how much you can carry, how fast you can go and you carry it. I love nothing more than whenever we had unit PT and it was like a, just a quick six or nine mile walk. And it was like first person in is going to have the rest of the day off. And, and you know, I, I thought I was pretty hoo hoo at the time, but I'm, I was always a lazy person like I am today. And I was like, so you're telling me if I spend the least time out there, I get the whole day off. Here we go. <laughs> off and running. I always assumed that was a trick. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. I got like a Dr. Pepper the day off every time it happened. It was great. That's awesome. Yeah. So what happened after TBS? Uh, after a TBS, I went to logistics school, which was in uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. So you actually got what you wanted, logistics. I wow. did get what I wanted. By virtue of your class rank, right? Class rank. So oh, yeah. yeah. And oh, at the time. Wait a minute. Does that mean you were like very top in your class or? Uh, it does. I was. Top enough? Top, <laughs> top, top enough. enough. All right. All right. That works. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> time for first. Like when I think of logistics, so like to, to start, at the time, did you know that like, and maybe it was at time logistics today seems like a massively intelligent place to be working in you know all jobs are logistics at some point in the end of the day you got companies like amazon and whatnot that are just massive like at the time did you did you could you predict or did you go into it intentionally knowing that it would, it would work you in a direction like that post-military um no i did not but um one of my very favorite people um my best friend at tbs we spent the whole six months together he was um he was a marine and he was he did logistics he did landing support and so he taught told me a lot about what he did um in his enlisted role and how much fun he had doing that um and it sounded great and i knew that there were trucks and helicopters involved and um that just sounded kind of cool and moving Moving people and equipment from one place to another, um, there's a lot of detail associated with that, a lot of planning, and you kind of have to have a, uh, your brain kind of has to work a certain way in order for you to enjoy that type of thing, and that is how my brain works. And thankfully, um, the staff at TBS also recognized that through some of the um, some of the leadership roles that I had at, at, at the basic school. So. Um, it's a combination of your class rank and then the staff recommendations as well can sway you, can sway your what you end up getting as well. So it ended up being a pretty good fit. So I did logistics school at um, at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, um, and then uh, while I was there, I flew home to Wisconsin and got married. So met my husband um, up in northern Wisconsin for the weekend. We got married, and then I flew back to North Carolina. And then, uh, and then ten days later was September 11th. Oh, jeez. Um, so I was on active duty, taking a taking an exam at logistics school. Um, when they interrupted our our class period to tell us about the the first airplane crash, um, we finished the exam and then found out about the second one. And then, uh, and then kind of from there, everything sort of changed, right? Sure. Yeah. What were some of those changes? 
Uh, well, immediately the kind of the base went on lockdown, and it was hard to get off. It was hard to get on base um, just from the security. Um, but uh, we kind of figured we would be going to war. We also didn't know if we had missed it because we were in school. Mm. So we were, uh, just, didn't, just didn't know. But everything got, got pretty serious pretty quick. Um, we were talking amongst ourselves, are they going to graduate us early and get us to the fleet? Um, and they didn't do any, they didn't do that. So we, uh, I don't know, had, must have had like six, uh, six weeks, eight weeks left of school. So we finished up school. Um, and I drove to Wisconsin and picked up my new husband. And then we, um, get, get in the car. Yeah. <laughs> get in. We're, good. We're doing USMC stuff. <laughs> so what, what, what were his thoughts? Like, you know, one, one point you're married, you go back, you, the world changes. Then you come back. Like, what were his thoughts on the matter? Uh, maybe I should have asked. I don't. I don't. <laughs> you know what? Are you, what, are you, what, are you, what, what can you imagine? Right? <laughs> you know, when you, when you get him, was he more it's nervous? A, like, what did he talk about in the car ride? Um, I, you know, so we were just kind of more nervous about what was life going to be like on active duty. So this was going to be my first my first duty station. I was going to be a hopefully be a platoon commander, leading Marines for the first time. Um, not in a school setting, um, and we just didn't know what life was going to be like. It, it. I was in the military. He's never been in the military, um, and so me marrying someone who's not in the military was exceptionally rare. Um, there are so few female Marines. There are fewer female Marine Corps officers, and almost all of them are married to military types. I feel like it's the same for the Army, too. Yeah. So we just didn't know what that was going going to be like. So we, uh, we that was kind of our biggest. We spent Early, a lot of time yeah. thinking about that. But once we showed up to California, um, all my friends were there from school. And if you're a second lieutenant, you're friends with all the second lieutenants. And then if they're married, <laughs> you're then not allowed to have any other friends. <laughs> <laughs> they're issued to you. So, and thankfully they're fantastic and they were really welcoming. And um, I found my friends that I went to OCS with, and they were in the same battalion together, and we checked in, and so. Was that your first time on the West Coast or had you ever, you know, did you travel much before the military? Some folks joined for the travel and some folks get some opportunities before they join, you know, um, had you ever been out West or, you know, where had you gone before then? Yeah, we did a ton of road trips as a family. So we had road trip to California a couple times. We road tripped out to um, uh, Seattle, Maine, Florida. Um, So we we spent a lot of time in the car driving. And I can imagine that sense of adventure, adventure, you know, kind of helped you form into who you were and who you are today as well. Yeah, I think travel is a good time. Mm-hmm. So you finished up school, <clears throat> excuse me, you finished up school in like November of 2001, get out to California, yep. you know, about about that time, report to your first duty station. Yeah, and I uh, became a platoon commander for... Um, Dreams coming true. Exactly. It was it was a huge dream come true. That's exactly what I wanted. So you're standing in front of a platoon of Marines, right? Like, hi, I'm Natalie. (laughs) Hello. Uh, You can. How would you like your leadership today? You can call me Lieutenant Eisenstein, but go on. Yes. Mm -hmm. No, I. I, You go on. (laughs) Yeah. So I I checked in and I became a platoon commander of a um, a platoon of heavy equipment operators. So they were. trained to operate construction equipment and forklifts, but the equipment that we had was forklifts. Um, and it was, uh, we were at the first transportation support battalion, one of the, the line companies, Bravo company. 
and uh, the company had a bunch of different missions, um, providing convoy support, motor T support for for units across the base, and then uh, my Marines used the forklifts to work at airfields and ports, loading and unloading aircraft or ships as the whatever the needs were. Um, what, what base was this again? Camp Pendleton. Camp Pendleton. Which That's Oceanside, right? Oceanside, yeah. Okay. Because oh, yeah. I, I always forget what 29 Palms is, I think, the less desired outcome. And I was stationed there in the Army. And I always remember <laughs> thinking, like, like, being in the Marine Corps in Oceanside, it's like, man, that's pro football moment. That's, like, the well, tops. It's, it's a huge base. Yeah. And it's, uh, I was, it was my first choice of duty station. I was really happy to be there. Because you just got everything you wanted. Yeah. <laughs> I Way work. to go, Tom Brady. <laughs> Listen, I worked, I worked very, very hard to get. <laughs> yeah. Well, not, congratulations. None, yeah. of, that was, none of that was given to me. I Don't assure let you. any of our cheeky jokes take away from your hard work, okay? <laughs> These are my insecurities <laughs> coming out, not yours. Yeah, I worked. I worked long and hard to, to be a to be a marine, um, and I was I was happy to be there. What was like the male to female ratio? I'm curious if there was any resistance as you coming in as a woman, like, or was that just all kosher because everybody's a marine, right? Uh, so yes and no. So the Marine Corps was, I think, almost six percent female when I was in. Six. Mm-hmm. Six. Okay. Yep. It's not a very big number. No, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it is not a very big number. Um, I actually had a I had a pretty good experience all the way around, um, and uh, that started at OCS. So the the female instructors are pretty well known for being very very difficult, um, and they were pretty open about the fact that we would be on display and people would be watching for us to succeed or not. Um, and so we knew yeah, that from the get-go that there were, we would always be scrutinized and uh, we'd always have to exceed whatever standards were given to us in order to be taken seriously. Um, so that, that expectation was set pretty early on. Um, and then the basic school, one of the things I did enjoy uh, and appreciate about the basic school is because everyone carried the same weight and everyone did all the same work. And it was, it was I was one woman amongst a squad of, my male peers um and there was four women in my platoon um they saw what i did every day and so they we we lived together we worked together i carried the you know we did all the same things and so they knew me as well as anybody could know me and so they had um they knew what i was capable of and what my strengths were what my what my weaknesses were just like i knew theirs as well and so that was kind of a great example of how they train leaders to recognize each other's strengths and, and weaknesses and see everybody as an important part of the team that can carry their, their weight, right? Um, so when I got to the fleet, I got to serve with some incredible leaders who just had no tolerance for treating people that, without re- dignity and respect. And so um, I had all the same opportunities as my male peers did. That's awesome. Um, but that being said, I was in, in a transportation support battalion. I was not in an infantry battalion. I wasn't in artillery. I wasn't in a combat arms unit. And so the percentage of women was higher for us. So I, I don't know. We had like 10%. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit better, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I, I was the, in my my first platoon was all men. And then uh, I transferred platoons, I think six months, in, four, four or five, six months in. I went to another platoon which was a landing support platoon. And there I did have two or 
three, one or two women in my platoon of 50. Um, so do you feel like you had to do some of the same stuff that those female drills did with the women that were under your command? Like, did you feel like you had to tell them, like, hey, you're going to be scrutinized, you have to be tougher, you have to be above par? Um, no, that wasn't really my role um, okay. to, to tell them that. They had already learned that from, from going to boot camp themselves. So, no, I did not have to do that. My, my role was to be, be the best leader of Marines that I could be, which meant ensuring that my Marines were trained and qualified and ready to be successful in whatever mission was given to them. So, so that they could come home. That could be a bigger idea that like you can't just tell somebody and expect them. Like you actually have to show up every day and, mm-hmm. and pay the rent. Like you had to show up right. every day and be it and model the behavior that they were to see. Right. And, it, and it's an every, it's an everyday thing. Right. But it, it, when you live with and work with and, and serve with all the same people, like it's hard to keep secrets, right? They, they kind of know who you are and it's, and if in, integrity is either important to you or it's not, and they know that. And leadership development's either important to you or it's not, and they can see that too. That's always one thing I. <clears throat> that's always one thing I really appreciated about the military service is uh, those opportunities for integration. You know, because you really do get to experience like a nice cross section of uh, folks that are American people who want to serve. So. Mm-hmm. Um, just like you said, like living, working side by side, face to face, those sorts of engagements, like what barriers after a certain point. Right. But you've been, so now you're in your second platoon in the fleet. Was it your second duty assignment or was it just kind of like an administrative change? It was a lateral move mm-hmm. within the, the same company. Okay. So, um, I, and at some point I got promoted to first lieutenant. Um, but then they, I was there for, must have been nine months or so. And then they reorganized the battalion a little bit. Mm-hmm. And at that time, they, I was a platoon commander for a landing support platoon. And landing support, they're the Marines that load and unload um, ships, rail cars, um, aircraft. They move a lot of equipment by helicopter, doing helicopter support teams, um, that sort of work. So I was a platoon commander for that platoon. And then when the battalion reorganized, they created a landing support company. So instead of having a, um, that landing support function in each of the line companies, they wanted to centralize that function into a company. So they pulled all the landing support platoons together, made it its own company. And when that happened, I became the company XO. I got to tell you. That newly formed company. You make logistics sound riveting. I <laughs> love logistics. I'm telling you, if you... If, if you want to go someplace, you need logistics. That's true. Yeah. You want to bring anything with you, you need logistics. You made a nice distinction when we were talking earlier about the difference between lo- logistics and supply. And I <laughs> impose on you to, to repeat that again. If you want something moved from here to there, you need logistics. But in supply. If you want it to be sitting there and then you want to count it. <laughs> kicks. Box that kickers. is supply. Box kickers. That's the difference. It's not right? the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Both very important. Both necessary. So I became the, the company XO for landing, the newly formed landing support company um, at the end of that summer, I guess, 2002, that fall. I've come to understand, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong or embellish beyond, but I, I've heard the company XO might be one of the harder officer jobs in the military as far as like the volume of work that you do, the responsibility that yeah. you're taking and, and, and everything like that, you know, how's that go? 
Um, I would agree with that. Uh, there's a ton of work that goes along with it, but it's uh, I thought it was fantastic because I got to be um, basically a leader among my peers. So my peers were platoon commanders. We were all the same. We were friends and we were peers. Um, but I had just a little bit more visibility to the whole company operation. So I got to be basically a leader of my peers. Um, but I also had responsibility to execute the vision of our company commander, who was fantastic. Mm. Great vision, knew what he, what he wanted, knew what to, how he wanted it. Um, and then it was up to me to, to work with the platoons to execute it. So it, yes, it's a very challenging job, but I thought it was, I really enjoyed it. I had some exos in the army that I really thought highly of, and you could tell just like, just like you kind of explained those officers in the, in the company level environment do have a better opportunity to build relationships throughout the company. And I can just imagine like knowing what you do now, uh, what that must have been like being being an XO for a logistics, you know, company and doing landing support. That sounds yeah. pretty intense. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. And we talked about some of the attitudes after 9-11 when you were still in a training phase, but like you hit your unit, you know, between when you get there and maybe how where you're at as an XO, like pre-deployment stuff, like how, what was the culture? What was the, what were the thoughts? What were people concerned about? Well, you know, how did that look? Um, we knew that we were training to go to war. And so every Friday morning, our company commander would, um, we'd do company PT and kind of, um, he talked to the whole company and tell, tell us that, uh, you know, we needed to be ready to go, that we're training to go to war. We don't know when, we don't know where, we, we don't know, it's, and that's not for us to say, but we need to be ready to go. So um, we don't, don't screw around, don't waste your time. You have to get yourself ready, get your, get your training done and be ready. So we spent that year basically preparing to go to war. And we knew, I think we knew that the reason we reorganized the battalion was to be in a better position for deployment. So was there like an energy in the air or how was everybody feeling about that? Yeah, there was a lot of energy. So we, we truly, we, like we were pretty sure something was going to happen. We just didn't know what, we didn't know where or when. Um, but, um, we were watching the news kind of like the, you know, the rest of the country to figure out what on earth was happening. Um, and what time period was this? 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, 2002. So we... So operations were already ongoing in Afghanistan? Operations were ongoing in Afghanistan. Yeah, so we were catching the news on that and uh, kind of listening in to some of those daily reports. But And your organization that, is, is explicitly spinning up to do its wartime mission. What were you doing to personally prepare... For you and your family, or uh, just physically, mentally, emotionally, yourself, like how were you trying to set yourself up for success, anticipating combat? Um, so personally, I got a power of attorney so my husband could take care of all of our administrative stuff and um, set up all of our our bank accounts so that he would be the one transferring money around and paying the bills and. Um, did you feel nervous about it or were you like very confident in yourself or like what were those feelings that you had about it? Uh, I was excited. I was, yeah. I mean, typically people don't join the Marine Corps to stay home. Right. And I, yeah. and I didn't join the Marine Corps to stay home either. Yeah. Um, but things got pretty serious at the end of 2002 and uh, a couple things happened is one, we found out that the the schedule for the Navy ships had changed. Mm. which meant dun, we had dun, dun. they were coming into town yeah. for us to load part of our battalion's gear on them plus other other gear 
and we knew darn well that the Navy doesn't change their ship schedule unless yeah. something's happening. So that was pretty serious. So we had um, a bunch of our Marines helping down at the working down at the port, helping to load up our battalion's gear plus um, other people's gear too. And then December of 2002, our, I had a training exercise planned um, for our company, and our battalion commander canceled it. And our battalion commander never canceled anything. And if it was training related, there was n- there was yep. no way our battalion commander was canceling anything. So that's when Parker that's when I knew we were going. Again. <laughs> so you got right goosebumps. Right. So that first week of December, we knew we were going, and then uh, then we, then we were working on rosters, and uh, working on rosters and making sure everyone got to the range to B zero their weapon, and they, they had wills and powers attorneys set up, and they had um, plans for their. Who is going to take care of the kids? And yeah. How old are you? Me? 40. No, how old <laughs> were you? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I was 20, 24. Did you make a will? I made a will, and then we had us. Uh, Not this will, a written will. A written will. The last will and testament. Yeah. I gave all to my husband. There yeah. wasn't, there's not that many assets. It was pretty good. Pretty straightforward. I was having a similar I, conversation with somebody else, and I'm like, I would like to give my student loans to my husband. Yeah, you, can my, <laughs> you can have my 27 inch Magnavox box TV, and you can have this used PlayStation 2. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they gave but us bury, a. Bury my copy of Spyro the Dragon with me. <laughs> they gave us this big long document of. Uh, some of the questions were like, if you get killed in action, how do you want your parents to be notified? It's like, well, I don't know. Send a chaplain, I guess. I don't know. Tell me I feel like first. when you're that age, you can't really think those things through that much. You know what I mean? Because I feel like at that age, too, you're like, nothing's going to happen to me. I'll be fine. Of course. Yeah. Not, nothing's going to happen. Uh, so, like, those. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that. That'll get you to take it pretty seriously. I took it pretty seriously. Yeah, at that time. Yeah. So, we, I mean, we had. we. I mean, there was a lot of work to pack and leave, so we were we were working, you know, six or seven day weeks, and then then we started um, sending parts of our battalion in different in different groups, and so half the battalion went on ship, I think. Um, so they, they left a little bit early, and then the other half started flying over. Did you have a hand in any of that planning, or were you just helping execute the company level stuff? Um, I was at the company level. But we had 200 some Marines, so making sure that each that's, individual Marine was ready to go was enough. That seemed like enough, yeah. Sure. Yeah, and we had our we had our own equipment, so we shipped out shipped all of our forklifts and our trucks, mm-hmm. our Humvees plus our MTBRs, and then we also had to get, as that's I think a, about that, we had to get all of our Marines licenses to, on this new equipment. So we got new trucks, MTBR, which have been retired already. So that's new, great. They new were new when retired. we had them. <laughs> Were you were you privy to more information than like the the everybody else that was going? Like you obviously had to know where the stuff was going. Boy, you would think that I would know more than they did, but no, I sure did not. Golly. I mean, we knew it, that we we knew we were going to a port in Kuwait. Okay, the ships are going to Kuwait. We knew that. We knew we were flying to Kuwait, but um, that's kind of the extent of it. So we, I we kind of split up our company in a couple different waves of deployment. And I ended up flying. I, I might not say it was the last group of Marines because I was the I was the XO, so I went with the last group. Um, and we flew over beginning of February of two thousand three. So where'd you guys fly out of and in and into any stops along the way? Uh, we flew out of March Air Force Base, which is in Riverside, California. And uh, we flew. It was a commercial plane that was rented out. Omni. 
I don't know. People are always surprised when they hear that and talk about how the military will charter like a regular oh, yeah, a, plane. Yeah. And so like, you know, I even remember the the oddness of that is like walking in with a fair amount of gear and weapons and like getting on your flight and like the cart comes down the aisle. It's like, hey, would you like a Diet Coke or water? I'm like, this is weird. Just so weird. Just, just having another your one of those weapons on the plane. Yeah. Completely was, dissonant. Yeah. Yeah. Experiences. Mm-hmm. And you're yeah. on one of the, you know, what year was this that you're rolling over? 2003. Pretty early. Like, I don't know that many of many of the staffs that were working those flights actually knew that that was happening until it became like a regular thing. Did you guys refuel along the way anywhere? We stopped in Germany. Okay. Did they let you off the plane? We got off the plane. Oh, that's surprising. I remember one of the trips back, I don't I think it was after an R&R, we stopped in like Budapest, Hungary, and we couldn't even lift the shades in the flight. It was, it was evidently a risk. But counter, like one time we stopped in Shannon, Ireland, and got tanked before we got back on the planes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know if the same thing happened in Germany. Did like did you, you as an XO, you probably had to keep yourself organized. Were any of your young Marines running out there and just getting loose or? No. Is <laughs> 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 no. that because you no, guys made I a rule happened. or because the the opportunity uh, never presented itself? Natalie's like, I'm Could've a goddamn both. professional. <laughs> <laughs> I trained my whole life for this. <laughs> We on our second deployment on the way back, our plane broke in <laughs> Germany. So they put us up in this bougie hotel for a night. Everybody oh. got so smashed. Like we saw everybody wasted. Like the, the command, like everybody no. were just like, holy crap, what is happening right now? This I remember, is trip. There's no parody. And like there's never any parody between experiences in the across the services. Not a chance. I remember our company XO in Shannon, Ireland walked in. It was the trip home, so like circumstances were a bit different than on the way into country. But laid down a hundred euro at the bar, and it was just oh, like started to open the tab for the. But group. like, I learned I learned interestingly enough in chemistry one day about the limiting reagent, and that's the thing that slows the whole process down, right? Mm-hmm. Guinness can only be poured so fast, uh, right? Yeah. And so like you just have a whole plane come off and just like do 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 do. Just waiting for Guinness. So then, of course, like, what is what does the young army enlisted person do? Shots. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yes. Only to do so what? like until the Guinness is poured, fire up the shots. Yeah. We're in Ireland, obviously. Now you're drunk on a plane, yeah. <laughs> going to going to a country that you've never been to before. Yeah. You know, I had a I went through Shannon, Ireland. I, my army unit was there with a Marine unit, and they all got to go to the bar. <laughs> but not us. We sat and watched. Aww. Similarly, going through going flying through Germany, there was some kind of equipment malfunction that got us taken out of the queue, and we got put into a hangar where no one fed us or visited us <laughs> or clothed us or gave us like beds. No one visited. They were you? just like, yeah. Well, no. Sincerely, it's just like, get off the plane, go to this hangar, stay. <laughs> and then like the sun went down, and then the sun came up, <laughs> and we're like checking with our yeah like. You know, the, the circle of life continues. Pride Rock was illuminated. <laughs> like, I'm remember. like looking left and right like I'm hungry. You know, like, yeah. and I'm like, hey, Sarge, you know. Like, that's like, the enlisted member's thought. I'm hungry. That's like, <laughs> well, you know. I remember when I went on my R&R and my unit just like drove over to Biop from the Camp Liberty, essentially, and just like dropped me off. And like evidently they had some thought that I was going to be back in 14 days because that's how much leave I was blessed. I slept on the concrete at Biop for four days before I caught a manifest. And when I finally got on a flight out, I got stuck in Kuwait City for, I think, three more days because at the time I was a corporal. 
which meant I had enough rank to run every detail to load the plane, but I didn't have enough to get on the plane. Nice. And so they made sure all the Joes had enough space to get on and all the senior NCOs got on and junior NCOs. But I was just like this middle thing that was just like, nah, back of the line, bud. Yeah, you don't want to be a corporal in the army. <laughs> and so then technically I was considered AWOL at some period because I didn't come back until like <laughs> seven days after they expected me back. And I hadn't worked it out in my head that this is at all a problem of mine. And so I just remember like, when I finally got back to BIAP and like, however I contacted my unit to get a, a ride back over, they're like, dude, they've been waiting for you. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, what am I supposed to say? Yeah, what's, Corporal, what's Corporal Howard supposed to supposed to do? Like, yeah. maybe, oh, sorry, just let me redo this manifest and promote <laughs> myself to this chalk here. Like, like hey, Lieutenant uh, Logistics Officer, can you get me on a sooner flight? My fault, your problem. Yeah. <laughs> That's like how that goes. <laughs> So you uh, get some sand on your boots or what? Yeah, yeah. So we got there uh, February, and Jeez. then uh, February of two thousand three. Two thousand three. I was just doing my delayed enlistment paperwork and turning on CNN. Yeah, there was a uh, yeah. Yeah, I was we, at the unit. I remember just like uh, all the crappy news coverage with all the you know the was it so had they started the bombing campaign yet? Like were they up in Baghdad or had 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 the movement? even started to move north yet you know like well, maybe fill us in as far as like what stage this was in the initial push um or can you even yeah so we were there f i was there for six weeks in kuwait uh, we did a whole bunch of training with um helicopters doing some external lifts out of any any base that you could name today uh it was not a base Okay, because I was uh, I was in Camp awesome. Bering for two weeks in the way up and two Camp Bering for two weeks in the back, way back, but that was the third year of the war. So like, you know, they bust us out to um, a place that had circus tents in yeah. the middle of the desert, like legit. So I bet it has tents. a name. Yeah, legit circus tents. Yeah. Well, they were oiled canvas on a pad. Where were you sleeping? In a in a tent. Do you even know where you were at? God, it's funny. None of this stuff had names yet, right? You were just like, oh, I was like, in a tent. We had a little, we had a name, but that it was a temporary. It was built just for us, and we, it was taken down later. Gotcha. Um, it was not. A, it wasn't a. It wasn't a base. It wasn't a camp. What were your we impressions had, of the Kuwaiti desert? Uh, just a lot of sand that keeps on going. I thought it was like, I had a moment out there, just standing there. Yeah, it's surreal. Know, not really doing anything. I look up at the stars, and it was just like. You know, I'm from the mountains originally, and then come up here, and it's like, okay, well, there's like Michigan and some rolling hills, or whatever, cornfields, and that's cool. But like being out in the desert, intentionally away from the population areas, I've never seen a sky like that. You know, and it was just like, was this moment of beauty on the cusp of my first combat deployment? It was just, yeah, you know, again, just another surreal, uh, dissonant I, experience. Yeah. So I had something along those lines. We were. Um, we, while we were in Kuwait, I was able to attend a bunch of briefings about what the invasion was going to be like and what we thought it might be like and what the plans were. Um, and so what, what I knew is that 96 hours before the war was going to start, my, a portion of my company, including me, we would be sitting at the border of the Kuwaiti-Iraq border and, uh, and we would wait to cross. I understand that's not just a line on a map either. Right. It was barbed wire. A and, berm. And berms. Earth berm. Yep. So um, there was a morning when we were in Kuwait when I was on my way to, to Chow to get some breakfast. Um, 
and we got word that we were going up to the border. So that's that was the when we found out that we're probably about 96 hours away from the start of this whole thing. So we. Uh, so you've been eating in the chow hall. What were the rations like? Like hot, hot real food, or you powdered um, eggs three times a day? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was hot food. I don't know, like. Like food chicken. in parentheses. <laughs> it's food, like chicken breast products. and potatoes and green beans and. Three toast. times a day. <laughs> <laughs> toast for, for breakfast. breakfast. Well, by 2005, they had graduated having chicken wings, but they didn't burn the hair off like the chicken first. So it was like hairy, hairy chicken yeah. wings. Hey. And Sounds great. I, I really like chicken wings. So it was the first time I was like, oh, I can't eat this shit. I can't what happened the second time? That, that you was, ate that chicken wing. <laughs> 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 it's, it's chicken wings. All right. Uh, didn't know we were going to get to that today, but, <laughs> but here we are. The truth be told, I think it was like an NFL game on or something early, a playoff game, because it was still January of 05. And so it was just like, you know what? We're having wings while we do this. Wings and probably like an O'Doul's Amber. Boy, the the finer things, you know? <laughs> the, fi- the finer things, <laughs> N- Natalie avoided by being a little too early as she moved up to the border. And I remember the border being up there, and it was just. Like, I didn't have maybe the same amount of information that you did, but I remember as we came up to the border, it was just like like the berms you say, and I was like, it's almost like somebody's standing there, like, clicking us into country, counting us in, and I was like, this is weird. So weird. Yeah, so we sat there for, for I don't know, 96 hours, and we listened to my my company commander's hand crank radio and listened to BBC, and the, the president gave a speech, something like, I don't know, 24, 48 hours, you've got to, to let the inspectors in or something along those lines, and... Oh, it that's was, right. I forgot. Oh, yeah. Because because yellow cake uranium Something. and weapons of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. I forgot about those things. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, history so was, yeah. didn't age well. <laughs> so when we were when we were sitting there, the, 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 the nights were quiet, but uh, we were watching the Scud missiles fly overhead. Um, and so, you know, some of them stopped halfway, right, kind of right above our heads because the... The Americans had shot them down. The Patriots were intercepting them? Yep. Wild. And then um, a bunch of them did not stop on top of our heads. They kept on going, and they were landing at our the camp where we were at. Wow. So our, our peers that were still there were in bunkers. Huh. Um, did they have to go into Mop Level 4? <clears throat> yes. And we went to Mop Level 4 at the border, too, because we had some. God, that sucks. What time? So it's, it's February 2003. March. You're in, March, March and you're in you're in Mop Four yeah. in the Kuwaiti Iraqi desert. Yeah, what are the days like? It's ninety degrees. Oh, it was cold. It was cooler than that because it was pretty cold still. Yeah, ninety degrees at one p.m., forty degrees at nine p.m. Something or like that. I don't remember the temperature being an issue that when we were there that early. I remember being cold at night when we first got there, but somehow I, that has stopped stopped being part of my memories. So my mop, yeah, my Mop Four experiences were mostly in Texas. But it was in San Antonio in like July to November time frame, uh, so I just associate Mop Four with sweating. To, like, but yeah, yeah sure, sweating, sweating. But like the life threatening kind, you know, where it's like you will drink water yeah. and eat salt, or you will perish. Like, you just can't yeah. keep up, you know. Yeah. Just wonder tactically if you were. I don't remember that part of it. I just, <clears throat> uh, but I know we did. Um. We did some selective unmasking because we didn't know if the if the incoming rounds. Is that the selective unmasking term for just being like fuck this? Yeah, <laughs> I think like we should not uh, let's not spread butter over this. 
Tell us about selective unmasking <laughs> and who got to go first. The lowest, I, yeah. the lowest ranking Marine. Well, I think the line in the manual says the least mission essential personnel. Because your lowest ranking dude might be the that. only guy who knows how to like. That was not the case. <laughs> yeah. what, if, what if bias came into play and you're just like the least liked and you're like, <laughs> all right. Well, like, that's what I'm saying. I'm looking out for PB2 yeah. Smith over yeah. here, but you know, like PFC, whatever. He can. We, we went straight Pretty by deeply. we went straight by the book. Um, of course you did. Yeah, for that particular thing. So that's yeah, what you're you, saying on record. Yeah, yeah. So it's I, all it's all well and good to like crack wise about it. It's not funny. Yeah, it's not funny, especially no, especially like it was not the, funny. The assumption is that nobody detected any noxious agents while you're doing the selective unmasking. Right. Was that the case? Uh, n- right. We, we did not think that there was anything that a, a dirty round had landed. But you checked. But we by did. breathing. Potentially by having the youngest. Yes. That's intense. You know, it's you know, it's one thing that like uh, certain combat arms, come, you know, folks will go nuts about uh, engagements and firefights. But like, you know, that's a that's a test of your whole unit because your you know, units are so cohesive. You spoke on the idea that. You were a family. You came, all your other lieutenants, right. you were just, you were a tenant leading other lieutenants and, and things like that. And like the moment when all of a sudden that becomes the protocol and you have to enact the protocol and we're going to run by the rules and go by it, the emotions that can come with that, I I cannot imagine how intense that was. So, so that was a pretty quiet night. Um, but. Uh, so the corpsman yeah. is, what do you do? The corpsman's there? Like, is, Oh, what you, is the process? Yeah. Oh, yeah, so um, it's something along the lines of you know you're wearing your gas mask, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. in the in gloves and boots and the and we were in the mop suits already, but yeah. um, it's something like the, the marine breaks the seal around the neck for like three seconds and closes it, and we you wait a couple minutes to see what the reaction is. If there's no reaction, you you do it again for five or ten seconds, and then you close the mask up again. And is that guy like stressing, or was he? It's just hope. like, well, this is it. It's gonna... this, this might be, right? You just, what do you do but hope and pray? Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. At least hope you can clear your mask fast enough before, like, it's too late. But even then, I don't even know. Like, it, one second can be too late. Not to... So the good news was that there there were no there were no dirty bombs. Yeah. How long were you guys in MOP4 sustained? What was the longest period of time you were, you were, you were at that level? MOP4 okay. with the gas mask? Yeah. Did you have to sleep with it on or... No, not not terribly long. I think we put our we put our went to mop four. I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten times. Damn, and that means seven, eight, nine different times you had to take those clearing measures. No, we did not because okay. if Just there's a impact. if there's a unit that can confirm that it's all clear, then we can take their word for it. <laughs> yeah, where where were the NBC cats? What was going on with that? Like nobody had the the paper the the color changing paper. We had it with the, us. So it was. Yeah, so just seeing how that fits in with the Sentinel. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't remember. We had, we didn't. Um, I do remember before we, when we were still in California, I sent a bunch of my Marines to training for mm-hmm. NBC training certification stuff, but we didn't have anybody that did it at full time for a job. Do you want to know? Every what Marine's I... a rifleman. Sure. Mm-hmm. Every so for... Marine's an NBC uh, specialist. <laughs> <laughs> So we're counting down here, you know, pick us up on the timeline again. What, what was kind of happening next? 
Uh, it's the th uh, third week of March. And then um, uh, we got the word that it was uh, it was time to cross the border. So we put our convoy in order and kind of waited our turn to cross. Um, it's kind of a traffic jam with all these units, all these convoys going through. Was that and, kind of uh, a weird sight too? Yeah, it's like the toll roads down in Chicago, you know, yeah. but, um, but yeah. in the middle of the desert. But it was, it was back in t before the toll roads, when you had to stop at the toll roads, right? Yeah, and so it was just, you just drive through, yeah. These, just these long convoys, and so. Soft skin Humvees everywhere. Yes. Do you have That's like some LAVs or something? No. Now what were you riding in? I rode a um, soft flight Humvee. That's confidence ensuring. I remember by 05, they were trying to get away from that, but didn't have the materials necessarily. The contracts hadn't come through. So on Camp Bering in Kuwait, we went around and found some Navy welders where they were torching off steel from other pieces and we were bolting them onto our existing Humvees. And so I, I remember bolting and putting this thing in the, and then being naive enough to like paint it a tan-ish color in hopes that like, that's not armor you see there. And then putting a couple sandbags, but the sandbags that only fit where the gas pedals weren't. So even if something busted through, you're still, you know, all right, you know, you still busted up. Yeah. And so just, you know, even even thinking like I was like, oh man, I was bummed about that. But you guys had nothing yet. You know, they hadn't even did you guys even have sappy plates in your body armor yet? My my battalion did not. Jeez. I think the grunts, some of the grunts did. What were those conversations like? What is what's the conversation to have? I, I mean, you go to war with the army you have. I think is what I guess said. so. Yeah. <laughs> so we went to war. This yeah. is what you get. Yeah. So but as an XO, I'm sure. I mean, at some point, somebody probably did some kind of advocacy. It's like, hey, could we please have? Sure, I'll put in the request. But until then, we got to run this convoy. Dang. I don't think I would have wanted you as my officer. You're probably too good at it. Like I mean, you're just straight to the point. You're like, hey, uh, so yep, I you bet. turn get around, out, get out of my office, get back out of my face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Suck it up, Buttercup. Like we got, we got some Sorry, LT. Just try not to die. <laughs> yeah. We got some stuff to do. So, uh, I mean, we were pretty busy, right? So we we ran that convoy, um, and uh, we crossed the border right as the sun was going down, and then uh, we got got to our destination, which was an airfield. Where at? Um, southwestern Iraq. <laughs> so several hours. How many days drive? That like? yeah. Um. It was probably eight hours of driving, seven hours, eight hours of driving. Um, but we had our lights off, and I was the, the rear vehicle. My company commander was in the front vehicle. We had a radio operator in the middle vehicle, and I was in the rear one. And we had some 20-some vehicles. Um, my, I could hear my company commander talk, but he couldn't hear me. So we had the, Gosh. the middle vehicle was our our relay for Retrans. communication, oh, wow. retrans. And uh, yeah, had our lights turned off. And then over the course of running this convoy in this dirt road, all the other convoys kind of pulled off to the side because they were they were getting split up. They were, it was it was rough going. Um, so they kept going off and pulling off and stopping. And and uh, we kept going. And we found out later that the, the battalion staff at back at our where we were in Kuwait, we're watching the Blue Force tracker on the computer screen and watching our blue dot keep going and going and going. And my company commander kind of was kind of joking. He's like, you told us to go. Like, we went. Like, we're not going to just stop. And he's like, but you, everyone else stopped. And he's like, but you, our job was to go. So we went. So we got to that airfield at like 2 in the morning. And then um, the next morning, the sun came up. and So you guys were the first ones there. Yes. Yeah. 
was there any other unit that secured that airfield ahead of time or was it just you just pulled up and were like, oh, this must be it? Correct. Wow. Yes. You know, I think right Brains. now, like, I can't even get around without Google Maps on my phone, let alone just like, be like, yeah, this, this seems about, you're like the first lieutenant who found, like, found their destination. I'm joking. <laughs> well, in my defense, I was the rear vehicle. So. Uh, fair enough. You just followed the winner. But yeah. <laughs> also, to my credit, we didn't lose a single person on that convoy. Yeah, that's, that. there's a lot to be said Do for that. Do you know that. how hard that Cause was? Because, like, even in training missions, you know, radios can slightly get out of sync and things right. like that. And, like, and, so many little details. I and we had traffic, like there were convoys that were weaving in and out, yeah, right? so weird. And there are no lights on. This is still so way weird. different like, than my experience, like doing the same drive two years later, and it's like. Yeah, at that time we stayed on Highway 1 the whole way up. Yep. And it was still a four day, three, four day drive to get to Baghdad. Yep. And you talk about, you guys were under night vision at that time. Did you guys swap out your drivers at all to give them any relief? Because eight hours under night vision driving is exhausting for the driver. Uh it was exhausting. It, we, yeah. There was no one to swap out. Golly, so I remember. We, yeah. So we didn't we didn't take any breaks because we so did, couldn't afford to stop. Yeah. So we just kept going. So you hit the airfield. Got to the airfield, and then um, uh, we end up moving from one spot to the airfield to the other, like an hour later. And then the next morning, the sun came up, and then um, I don't know if it was that day or the next day, but um, helicopters started arriving with ammunition, artillery ammunition. And so we started landing those helicopters. And so you kind of, um, they, they're loaded up. And so when our Marines are trained to do this, so they go out and, you know, greet the helicopter and take command of it and then, and then bring it down to the ground. And then um, we had forklifts. So we started offloading that ammunition and set up the first ammunition supply point. And then, um, and then other units started rolling in and it started doing this buildup around the airfield where they had um, some of the larger resupply units that would set up, um, um, yeah, resupply for food and water. And we were kind of doing like wholesale. Re- it's and then, really Costco. Yeah, yeah, yeah like <laughs> trucks full of, of gear and, and stuff. And then these other units would come pick up, swing by and pick their up, pick up their gear. At what point so, did a black market emerge? Yeah, that's what uh, I'm saying. Like, who was the first person to steal something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you always see these dirty deals. Like, uh, Vietnam vets will be like, "We had access to beer, and they had access to steaks, and we became friends." And I'm just like, "That sounds Perfect. reasonable sounds to me. Yeah. Pretty reasonable." <laughs> yeah. So we had we had uh, relationships that you cultivated. We actually, our company happened to be self self sustained. So we had our own food. You had your own beer and steaks. And our own <laughs> water bowl. We didn't have any of that. No. So we anyway, we stand up, I don't know how long we were there for, several days a week, and we set up airfield operations. So my company specialized in loading and unloading aircraft. So we called it AGDAG, which is um, the ground crew for the for the aircraft. So help, or, um, uh, What kind of aircraft platform were you mainly using? We did a lot of C-130s. Okay. Interestingly enough, my brother was there for that same push working on C-130s and oh. quite the whole time. So yeah. like... It's possible you two have been exposed to the same tail numbers. That's that is very possible because we saw a lot of the same planes come through and met a lot of the same pilots. So we did we would unload cargo planes and then if someone wanted it loaded up, we would do that too. But mostly we just unloaded stuff and set up ended up doing the setup this whole buildup of of supplies and, and we had warehousing, like outdoor all all pallets and stuff set up. Plus the ammo supply point which was kind of out in the corner. We had Marines working there too and loading up um Helicopters full of artillery ammunition. Was there any local then, population nearby? Um, we not so much. There were some um, 
sheep herders that came by, but not too much in the way of actual population. So but we had. I want to know who got to upgrade their house with all those pallets and put in all these like right. pallet walls and things like that. Like who got to benefit from all those unused pallets? I, that I can't. I can't speak to that. Were you tracking pallets by serial number at that point? Yeah. We were doing a rough count. Of planes worth of pallets. One for the burn pile. One for this. And yeah, and they were actually. Uh, 463L pallets. The pallets that come in and off of planes, so they're metal pallets. They're highly. You said 463L. I mean, just off the top of my head. How many years has it been? It's just like off the top of my head. I'm going to tell you exactly (laughs) what this is. I hope I'm not wrong, by the way. No, no, no. Well, I hope you're not wrong, too. We'll find out on social media. I'm (laughs) I'm sure sure someone will point that out. But again, that's the the way these military experiences are ingrained into you. you It's like, I'm sure there's people out there memorizing NSNs and different things like that. That's like. You have some folks have nightmares of whatever, and you have nightmares of that. Yeah. Your ULL box fails. <laughs> Wake up in the middle of the night. <laughs> My computer. <laughs> so we ended up set leaving a platoon at that location and then um, convoying up to another airfield and kind of doing the same process, opening that airfield mm. up. Um, and then we were also desert hopping. Yeah, did you bound? Did you like send platoon? Then did they bound up beyond you at some point? Uh, no one bounded beyond me. Okay. Interesting. What kind of tent? Like, who's your security? You said you were self-sustaining, so you've been reorganized into like a brigade combat team, or was your company, your landing support company, just our doing it all? Landing support company was our company. We also got uh, some attachments of um, got some reservists that did communications, some com marines, and. Uh, we had some extra reservists that did landing support, but then we were part of a battalion, and the battalion actually got a bunch of additions to it. So they ended up having um, like an Army Reserve Transportation Company attached, a National Guard unit from Michigan that had bridging sections got attached to our battalion. Hmm. Um, who was pulling guard? Who was making? Who was yeah. watching you when you slept? You know what I mean? Or was it was it was it your turn on post every six hours or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So yeah, self-sustaining. Self-sustaining. At that point, what was the pucker factor? Like, how how safe did you feel? Zero to ten. Uh, so I felt pretty safe because I was surrounded by Marines, um, who were pretty excited to be there and ready to do some stuff. But um, I mean, it wasn't particularly safe to be where we were. What? When did you notice a difference on the movement up? Or was there a difference? You know, I think for me, it started a lot as we crossed into the Kuwaiti, from the Kuwaiti to Iraqi border. It was like people on the side of the road, you were like throwing MREs out to and stuff. And you'd see camels, which, by the way, I was surprised when I saw a camel. I was like, well, that's exactly what I thought that looked like. Fucking camel. Okay, cool. But then at some point, we got to some different bases to where um, we, re- we had to stay up and do watch at. And then once we pushed up into Baghdad, that's where we were taking short halts because, you know, elements in front of us were starting to get new engagements and things like that. So like, you know, did you notice a difference as you went north or, or how'd that play out? Um, so as, as the invasion went forward, there were these firefights and battles that were happening. Um, and, uh, the casualties, casualties were coming to us cause we yeah. had, we had the medical support there. So we were offloading the helicopters with the casualties. So, the first location. So this is ongoing. As soon as you got to that airfield, you're starting to evac. Is that just coalition forces or was it mixed? Um, 
So we offloaded um, Americans and then uh, a lot of civilians also. That's not clear. The civilians, was it was it possible that any enemy combatants were included in that mix, or was it strictly, or was it not, you I don't, couldn't tell? Couldn't mm. tell, didn't matter. We, Our philosophy was we've got casualties, let's take them off the board and get them over to the mm. surgical unit. So there was a combat support hospital there? Or yeah. Some like yeah, like a shock trauma platoon, I think. It's a, some sort of hospital. I forget, I'm forgetting the what level. Like cash. So yeah, like a cash. What was your final destination in country, or like, how long did it take you guys to get up to where you settled in and seem to find a foothold? Um, so we leapfrog from airfield to airfield, and we ended up the mo- the farthest north I got was Solomon Pock, which is um, seven or eight miles southeast of Baghdad. Okay, there was an airfield there that we yep. that we ran. Um, and at that point, I think we were my company was spread out between five airfields. Jeez. And so when we got to that last one in Salma Park, the further <coughs> is the farthest north we went. Um, we I can't remember if we shut that down or we handed it off to another unit. But we backed up. We closed. We left that location. Went back to our previous airfield and, and stayed there for for I don't know a couple weeks. And then uh, started closing down the airfields because they were shutting down those bases. And not and I use the word base in, inaccurately. Sure, sure. It, so then, you know, was that kind of your movement back out of country per se? Yeah. So we uh, we got word in, it was May. So everything happened pretty quick. It was in May that uh, we got word that we were to hand off. Either there are a couple locations where they shut down that, that whole support area because it was done. Uh, it was intended to be temporary. And then I think the one that we were at, that, that particular base, used to be an Air, Iraqi Air Force base. Um, we handed it off to another unit, like a, a, a unit that came, had just come in from the States and flew in. How they badly like beat fresh up, and clean. How badly beat up was that base when you got there? Because, like, uh, you know, we ended up, I don't know, 20 miles north of Baghdad, maybe 30 miles north of Baghdad. And we ended up cruising around. And one of the spaces in our zone was an Air Force base the, for the Iraqis. And honestly, it was just bombed to shit. Like there was hardly anything left but like maybe a hill to drive up on and take pictures from. And so, you know, how badly peppered up was that place? Um, so every uh. airfield that we went to, we had CBs with us. Um, what are and CBs? They, they are the Navy Construction Battalion. Oh, CBs. Yeah, and so sorry. they would go in and repair the airfield so that the fixed wing aircraft could land. Got it. And they had to go repair all the potholes and... So what were like your, like your hygiene and your bathroom situations? Oh, we should have had that. That's a good idea. Yeah, like <laughs> because like all I'm thinking, like when I got there in 0506, we had porta potties. Uh, if it was really nice, we had some trailer bathrooms. I imagine you had way way less than that. Uh, yeah, we didn't have anything. So uh, we had porta potties in Kuwait until we went to the border, and then um, and then we had nothing. So how? Did you pee? Where did, so, where did it go? Um, the side of the road. Because I, I read a book to my daughter that says called Everybody Poops. Right. It happens. It's on, the, it's on the side of the road, my friend. I remember in the drive up from Kuwait. Did you guys like hold up stuff for each other? Was it just like no shame? Everybody's just going to poop. Like a crime scene. Everybody. People were holding up white yeah. sheets so you can't see. <laughs> so he, so here's what I did. So we would run a convoy and I figured out pretty quickly that as soon as the convoy stops along the side of the road, 
all the Marines are going to get out and pee. So like, well, I'll give them a minute. So I would, I'd give them like two minutes. Like, you know what? Finish up what you're doing. Strategy. I'm coming out. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then I'd hop out of the truck and then I would sometimes went, went to like the back of the convoy and to just to squat next to the side of the truck. Um, yeah. So we, I drove or a in med- the middle of nowhere, ambulance. but we tried not to go in the middle of nowhere cause it, we weren't, we were worried about mines. Yeah. So it, it's not good, right? It's not, none of this is good. So there's a ton of poop yeah. on sides of roads in Iraq. Tons of it. Probably. Probably. I mean, what about, so you guys had no showers. So baby wipe showers? Yeah, we had baby wipes. Yeah. I remember one time in the field, I took rubbing alcohol and mouthwash, mixed it together, poured it on a rag, and scrubbed myself mm-hmm. after 14 days in the field. And I smelled good afterwards. <laughs> I even played, I was like, the, the, I, I don't care what other people think. <laughs> I remember the Outcast song in my head. I'm like, ain't nobody dope as oh. me. And I'm just like scrubbing my skin off, trying to get everything the funk off. So fetching so clean, clean. Yeah, see, we're probably going to get sued for that. Thank you. Oh, I should have. <laughs> And so it's like, like how creative did you have to get? Like, you know, did you poop in an MRE bag and throw it as far as you could? Is that even possible? I don't know. I just went out and toilet paper. Though we had e-tools. Did nobody have e-tools? I I mean, Uh, yeah. I'm not sure about the mystery. That just seemed like a little more effort. Right. Right, It's a kettle. Yeah. Yeah, Dig a hole. Dig a hole. Dig a hole. And then cover back up. Right. That's pretty much it. Just feeding worms. Did you have an issue with toilet paper supplies? Uh, the logistics officer. So we did. (gasps) So here's what I found out. Marine Corps is excellent at very many things, but somebody has to be in charge of the toilet paper. And we did not have enough. Critical oversight. Critical oversight. (laughs) All right. uh, Did you take on the responsibility? You're like, I got this. I got this. (laughs) Well, I couldn't couldn't take care of it. We didn't have any. Like, we had to get it shipped in. And and then? I just feel like... Rationing and infighting. And then toilet paper. <laughs> oh no! How does this escalate? <laughs> well, then, what? Well, and then enhance, enhance. We're gonna get sued again. <laughs> but once you switch to MREs, it has toilet paper in them. So we were, uh, we were in, when we were in Iraq, we were not enough. MREs. <laughs> not enough. <laughs> yeah, that's such a that's another little cruel twist of military humor. Like here's your two inch by two inch flimsy. <laughs> so on the, on the drive from us from Kuwait up to Baghdad, I was driving an army ambulance with four bays in the back, which we never used for the 12 months that I was there. But we drove it up. We had a Gatorade bucket because we were responsible. We wanted to rehydrate people. Uh, we might have made it 100 miles into country before our company first sergeant comes running back down the line in a short halt. He's like, I'm getting in the back. <laughs> Pours out the water. Filled the Gatorade bucket with what you assume he did. He basically took a shit in it. And he our, shit in the Gatorade bucket. Yeah, he should took a shit in the Gatorade bucket. He didn't want to shit outside. And so he shits in the Gatorade bucket. And we then we got out of the short halt and had to keep driving down the road. And he's still done. He's done shitting back there. And we were just like, what do we do? He's like, go. The next time I stop, I'll get out and go back to my truck. And so then he finished and ran back up to his truck. And then everybody asked, like, hey, Top, where are you at? He's like, I'm shitting in the medic's truck. So that opened up a proof concept. All of a sudden, we came no. like the moving shit truck. And so then finally, we got smart and we tried to like clean it out at one point, putting bags in between everybody and just bombing shit bags out the window because we had a four day drive. Like at some point, it catches on. And people are like, I could either squat and use my, like have to hold myself up or I can go in the back of the medic's truck and take a shit on a Gatorade bucket. Did you feel intimately connected with everyone then? Maybe. <laughs> Honestly, I was the most annoyed because our TC at the time, and if he listens to this, 
F you a little bit. He didn't ever give me a break from driving ever. And like just the smell would build up and I would look over and see him sleeping and I'd want to flick his nose or do anything just to wake him back up. I had a summer experience on my drive up. Not not with the not being the porta potty on wheels, but my T C, you know TC? He was T C and uh, truck commander. Oh, okay. He was uh that was his role and I was the driver. Yeah. And he did his best to like keep me awake by having simulating conversation, but I guess his idea of that was like, Who's your favorite comic book character? Oh, and he only knew like two, so I'd be like <laughs> Uh, Gambit. <laughs> He's like, who's that? <laughs> like, get out. <laughs> but. Did, I'm curious. So, like, we're joking around. At some point, like, you're cutting cat trenches. We're shitting in Gatorade buckets. Did your standards ever break down and get, like, did you ever get a little bit more lax with things like that? or Because at some point before we started rolling out for missions, every single truck had computer speakers mounted and you'd just be blaring, like, five-finger death punch and stuff. Like up until you got out in zone or anything like that, or until it seemed like serious, like the standards may have been broken a little bit. Like, did that ever happen for your unit? I don't remember anything along those lines. Oh, good night. That's amazing. You should wear like that. Is not gonna. Did they give you? Was there a medal that was just like follow the rules medal, like good conduct? I think they They have one. (laughs) No, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't recall that. Fair game. We, uh, I mean. We took things fairly seriously, I guess. I mean, I would like to think we took things fairly seriously, too. But now that I've heard your story, we didn't. So, fair game. How long were you in country for? Uh, Not nearly as long as everybody else. So, like, um, third week of March through, like, the, I don't know, somewhere in May. Yeah, that's intense. Going from, you know, going from 96 hours out, mop four listening to a crank radio, all of a sudden you're pushing, you're hopping zone, pushing artillery equipment, et cetera, as fast as you possibly can to keep everybody in the fight while you're in the fight yourselves, establishing air bases, working with Navy CBs, working with, with the air force flying the C one thirties. And to me, like when you say logistics, like that's a massive understatement. Like yeah. you guys were coordinating a lot of movement. We were and our, our battalion had um, pretty, pretty big responsibility but it was even it was bigger than that as all um fssg kind of the our our battalion plus our sister battalions that were all in in general support of first marine division but um it was a massive undertaking it but it was it was so like it was so impressive and it was so the 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 amount of work that went into it and what we accomplished and how quickly we accomplished it and um, the fact that we did it with, without slowing down First Marine Division and without we didn't we didn't slow down the invasion. That was um, just a huge focus for us to not be the reason that the invasion slows down, and we weren't. Um, and so that was, I mean, that's pretty satisfying. And then to, uh, you know, to to I spent all those years training, right, and all those years fighting so hard to figure out a way to just to make it just to just be a to part get of it in to, so I could be part of it so I could have the the opportunity to to lead marines and then and then I got to not only lead marines but I got to I got to lead them in in war I mean what what a there was and, there's just no greater honor than that and you did it well it sounds like you did it really really well because you know it sounds like there's really I'm not hearing a lot of hitches in the story and I had a buddy that was kind of tip of the spear in, in third ID 
And, um, you know, he was on one of those Time magazine covers when they were sleeping in the sand. That was my buddy Joey sleeping in the sand there. But, like, hearing his story and things like that, like, they had to take so many maintenance halts to continue just to work on their equipment, just to keep it moving and things like that, that it was it was really a feat of maintenance, logistics, and things like that, just to keep things pushing. It was, I mean, it was incredible. The um, Yeah, but we had, like, we prioritized in ways that made sense. So we prioritized artillery ammunition above anything. So our philosophy was if you if you run out of artillery ammunition, it doesn't matter if you have chow. You know, none of none of what you did, I think I don't think you ever expected any like thanks for that kind of stuff, but like was there ever any opportunities where units would cycle in and at least express some gratitude for some of the missions that were being pulled off? Or what was the camaraderie on the ground like? Um, I can't think of anybody that was looking for any thanks. We just wanted to um, do your job. We just wanted to do our job, yeah. and we wanted to do it well. And and well meant getting First Marine Division what they needed and making sure they had it before they needed it. Well, every time yeah. a piece of ordnance goes downrange and you hear that big boom, that's a thank you. You know, especially if there's troops in contact or whatever the situation might be. So when you started to when you started to finish up your time in zone, you come back. I assume you come back to the states. Then you know what did the rest of your time? Um, what was the rest of your time like? Um, when we were uh, we made it back to Kuwait, and then uh, my company commander got got orders to school, so he left, and I became the acting company commander for the next three months or so. So I brought the brought our company home to Camp Pendleton in uh, kind of in chunks, the Marines and then all of our gear as well. And then uh, we're kind of at, at partial strength and not able to fully support all of our missions in California until early that fall. Um, we got back up to full strength with everyone who came home. And then uh, we celebrated the, the Marine Corps birthday that year, which is a pretty big, pretty big celebration. And then uh, pretty quickly after that, we found out everyone was going back. <laughs> but you built... <clears throat> So the bookends of that first deployment were kind of like third week of March to November 10th, 2003. Is uh, that how you think of it, or how do you? No, I came home in July. Okay. I was home in July. And everybody else was boots on ground back in the States around that time? or um, Our our battalion, um, we came back in, in chunks because some of the missions kind of lasted longer than others. Um, but by that fall, we, our battalion was home. We were all home by then. But uh, we found out everyone was going back, because um, kind of whole, a lot of things kind of kind was of fell apart. Was there still like that same level of enthusiasm as compared to like the first deployment, or was it kind of like? Uh... Um, I... something changed. Something changed. It was different because we. It was different, so we knew a lot more. But the enemy had changed. That's a great point, and that's something that uh, I don't know how many people are aware of that, or or you know think about it consciously. But I mean, I had a colleague who had deployed with Fourth ID as part of that initial invasion, and ended up getting you know uh, attached to our unit as an individual augmentee for the second round of deployments. Involved, uh, you know, through the OIF series, and she 
had the date circled that the first IED was detonated in country, and it was, you know, September of. Is that fall? September was it two thousand three or two thousand four? It must have been two thousand three because I was there in you know two thousand four. Yeah, when we were there, we were worried about snipers, and um, ambushes. It was our biggest threat when we were running convoys, and then. Um, Direct fire. Yeah. Small arms. And a, yeah, full on ambush though. Yeah. Um, so did you go back with them that that fall when they got? I did not. So my um, my company went back. Uh, my battalion, most of my battalion went back, but I found out I was pregnant. Oh, well, congratulations! Thanks. Was it too late for that? <laughs> She's doing great. It's only yeah, been yeah, about yeah, seventeen yeah. years. Uh, Her name is Emily. <laughs> Hi, Emily. <laughs> Yeah, so I, uh, I was, it was three weeks before we were supposed to get back, supposed to get back on the airplane, and I found out I was pregnant. Oh my gosh! So like, how did you? Feel I think for a lot of fa- yeah, for a lot of families that could be good news, but at the same time, like, you've been pretty intentional about how you've developed your oh, career yeah. to this point. Yeah. Was this part of your plan, your overall plan? Yeah. So not to get into too much family planning, <laughs> but what happened was, <laughs> uh, we got home and. Uh, we had taken so much medication while we were overseas that the doctors, I think, said something like, we don't know what the impact is. Oh, you might wow. want to wait six months before I get pregnant. I don't know. Wait, what meds were you, were they giving you? Like malaria stuff? Or? Yeah, the malaria stuff. Oh, Plus, we had done the anthrax vaccination. Yeah. What the? What was that like? So there was chloroquine, prevaquine stuff for anti-malarials. And then yeah. Did you take the glucose-6-phosphate derivative test for the the genetic thing so there's this huge cascade of consequences that can occur if you take these anti-malarial drugs and you have this particular deficiency no they they gave us the drugs and then i took them (laughs) so they were testing (laughs) on the back end i guess for that for that what was the anthrax uh yeah i'm gonna nerd out for a second was it seven series was it a seven shot series at the time i know mine was three I got it to five. Yeah, they so stopped it, it after two. Like it definitely once, evolved over time. Once they figured it out. Mm-hmm. All right. I don't remember. How so about you get home smallpox? I did smallpox, You got a too. smallpox vaccination? Yeah. At the same time, I did the anthrax. Oh, jeez. So, yeah. So then they at least had the courtesy to be like, maybe don't try and make another human. Well, all these Which is what they said. Crazy right. That was, the, that was the outbriefing as we kind of got out there. And right. as the story goes, you so, clearly followed those orders, right? Yeah, the I did. one time. So I did. Yeah. Oh, you did. Did you mark it on your calendar? I thought we had something. Did you? I, did. I thought we had a moment. <laughs> so you're like, oh, I'm clear now. Yes. <laughs> and then put the music on. Right. <laughs> yada yada yada. <laughs> Can't go on deployment. So if you do some, if you do a little bit of the math, right? So six months after I got home, and then word starts happening that like I think we're going back. I think we're going back. No way we're going back. Oh shit, we're going back. Um, and so then I said, well, I'll I'll do this one more pregnancy test, and if it's positive, we're having a baby, and if not. I'm going back. Yeah, booting up. Exactly. So I was pregnant. Cool. And so so I, how did was that like a mixed feeling? Because you know, obviously you're happy because you're gonna have a baby, but you're not going right. with your unit. Not going. Yeah. yeah. All your I, other little babies, your yeah. little marine. <laughs> I know. Waddling <laughs> right? out there without their XO. I know. <laughs> right. No company commander at this point. Oh yeah, sure. Well, I got yeah. a new company commander. Okay. So I I was back to being an XO again. Okay. I was like the longest running XO ever. <laughs> That's the thing, like. <laughs> A good XO is a force multiplier. So mm-hmm. if I was so the, they they were not in a hurry to yeah I was happy and they didn't want to move me so no one asked any questions. It comes so I just, to no surprise as you know it comes to me as no surprise like yeah so my company went back and I I became the remain behind uh, company commander so yeah mixed feelings um, but mostly happy because really our 
you know, we had talked about having a baby before deployment and, but there was no way I was going to miss, I was, there was no way I was going to miss going to war. So, um, got your first one in, first one in and we thought we were done. So start having babies. Um, but yeah, so all memories went. for the, for the portions of your unit that did deploy for that second time, what was their turnaround time? Uh, they were not gone terribly long. Uh, and partly be, that was because our battalion commander was fantastic. And he was of the mind of why should we send extra people and make them stay longer on principle? There's mm-hmm. nothing to be gained from that. So we had a mission and that our, comp- the, our battalion had a mission, which was to run the airfields at, um, I think it was TQ, um, and in, and in Kuwait as well. So they went there and they performed their mission. And when the mission was done, they came home. So it was it was not as long as a lot of the other rotations were. Um, but while right after they came home, my right after my company came home the second time, I got a different billet. I switched jobs, and I became the S four officer for First Medical Battalion. That's supply, right? S4? Um, S4 is the logistics officer for the battalion. Uh, logistics, my mistake. Excuse me. <laughs> How dare you? No, so could, I, you? could you clarify it for me? Yeah. Uh, third week of March, you're back in July-ish, you said? Yes, I'm sorry. I came home in July. And then and the rest of the battalion gets back in November. By November, we had all come, we had come back in bits and pieces. Your yes. six-month window, <laughs> the, the stopwatch dings. Yeah. What was that now? Like July 5, so January, February? Of the next year, so February 2004, your battalion's cooled down and is now getting sent down range again. Uh, so maybe my math was off a little bit, but anyway, <clears throat> I found out I was pregnant right at the end of December. December 2003? 2003. Okay. Yeah. So the cool down, that was, a, yeah, so your battalion, the final elements of your battalion had returned home the month before, and they're already like, hey. We're going back. Don't, don't get too comfortable. Yeah. Well. So you yeah. switch billets. <laughs> you switch billets. You go to the S four. Yeah. You know what the I mean, remainder of your career in the Marines look like. Um. So then I yeah. So I was the S four officer for med- medical battalion, um, and I was pregnant, um, and the battalion was deployed. Um. So I was also the S four alpha, um, which included the motor being the motor T officer, and in charge of the armory, and and the housing, the building for the Marines um, and sailors. Um, so I did that. Um, and the, at that time, they had people, their battalion was deploying and redeploying a couple different times. Um, so we had a bunch of reservists, um, medical types coming into the battalion. So we kind of mobilized through our battalion and sent them, sent them over. Um, I had my daughter in September of 2004. My contract was up in September of 2004. Um, and it didn't seem wise to get out at the same time as having a baby, so I requested an extension of my contract. And so they extended my contract until May of 2005. And so while I was S4, I got promoted to captain. Cool. And then uh, ended up getting out in September. Well, no, not September, in May of 2005. You just got an extension? You didn't have to re-enlist? That's a thing? I was an officer. Oh, that's a thing for officers. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard of that. Yeah, so it, um, enlisted can extend, but usually it's like you can extend to re-enlist. Like they usually loophole you in some way. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So he, the possibilities are endless. Yeah. <laughs> like it depends on it de- there's there Listen, are some things. I thought I was going to be a firefighter, and that didn't work yeah, out. So right. who knows what the rule book? I actually have a firefighter says. story. We're going to circle back to that at some point, but well, we'll put it uh, put it on the list. Put a pin in it, huh? Yeah. 
So my, my thinking was, I'm a logistics officer. If you would like to go someplace, you need logistics officers. I have skills. I'm qualified. I can do work. There's nobody coming in to backfill me because they're all they're all deployed. Mm-hmm. I can provide value during the time that I'm here to do my actual job. I'm and enjoying so, the the mental image of you in maternity BDUs or whatever the marine analog was at that time. Gammies, Just yes. like yeah. you know, kicking ass and <laughs> taking names at the you know at the shop, the S4 <laughs> shop. They're like, where are my doggone pallets? My my LT thirty fours, you know. And then just big old belly with Emily. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. Bring your, bring Emily your saw a lot, you know, day. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine the person at the time that wanted to try to like put you out of the military? I was like, no, we don't want to extend. And you come in and you're just like, I'm extending. This is happening. So that Make did happen. happen. That did happen. So that did happen. <laughs> they submitted the request up to headquarters Marine Corps. And uh, the request said something like, please extend Lieutenant Eisenstein. And the request came back, no. So that was not approved. Um, and then I ended up running into a, a colonel that I had, um, that knew of me. Um, Purely accidental. It wasn't at his doorstep mm-hmm. at nine o'clock at no, night. No, it was. Like, I We kind of ran into each other on base. He asked me how I'm doing. I said, well, sir, I'm kind of kind of bummed. I got to get out of the Marine Corps. I request an extension and it was denied. I'm kind of bummed. And then I went home, and then uh, I got a phone call from the S1 officer saying, uh, we just got a call from Colonel so-and-so. We are resubmitting your package. Could you come back in and, and re-sign this? And I said, well oh, sure, done. I'll be right in. God, that's cool. Well so that was kind of one more example of a Marine Corps officer looking out. And uh, Yeah. How, how nice for you. <laughs> I'm like, if I get a call bringing me down to the Battalion S shops at 9 p.m. of the night as a <clears throat> Even as a junior NCO, it's just not like, because uh, it was good, right? But no, no this this good. case was great. So they submitted, they kind of explained a little in, with a few more words why my skill set is particularly useful for this particular battalion. They could really use my help for a couple more months, and then it was approved. Cool. Well, that's a credit to your professionalism, of course, your abilities, right there in black and white. <laughs> how did how how was it for you as a transit transition out of the military? I know for me, like. I was involuntarily extended beyond my contract due to the needs of our country. And so like I wasn't alone in that. Yeah. And it just seemed like at that point there was so many people leaving on the same day. It was just like, all right, we're all kind of leaving. But what did that, what was that like for you? I I remember when I sat down and I got my DD two fourteen, and she's like, sign right here. And I signed right there. And she's like, she was so matter of factly. She's like, you're done. And I'm like, what? I'm done. And I remember like a feeling of accomplishment, but honestly, I remember it just felt like my stomach sunk. I was just like, wow, what's next? Like, what am I supposed to do now? That anti-climax is something that it's I don't weird. think people expect. Walking out of the, I walked out of the, yeah, the general admin shop and got my car and home to Chris and Emily. Yeah. And then, and then what? Yeah. And then that weekend I moved to Wisconsin hey. to start my new job. Go Badgers. <laughs> you already got a job? She's a logistician. I had a plan, Adam. my friend. I'm not, I'm my sure plan was unemployment. They told me, like, you can cash in on unemployment. I'm like, I'm doing that. Yeah. No. So my plan I was like, a... I'm a combat vet. Like, life, I'm a, life should be easy. I'm on easy street now. Like, oh, wait. No, I need to find a job and do all those things, too. I had a I had a family to support, and I had I had I needed to work. Family shmamly. So, yeah, I while I was my last year, while I was on active duty, I was looking for work. Um, we knew we were moving home to Madison, and uh, so you're already college educated. Family is 
growing at this point. We uh, had one and hoping for more on the way. And your husband was also college educated. And, and had a job in San Diego. Let's take a minute and like maybe just briefly summarize. What was, I mean, you didn't ask him before he came, but like what was his experience like throughout all this stuff? Uh, so he enjoyed our life in the military. Um, he, we had a fantastic group of friends who were really fun and nice and just wonderful people. Um, the base has a ton to offer um, between the movie theater and restaurants, and and we were three miles from the beach. And Oceanside, right? Like, I mean. And we weren't even in Oceanside. We were in Carlsbad, which is <sighs> just like one step farther away and even prettier. Um, and he had a job that he he enjoyed in San Diego. Um, so he, overall, he has a, he has fond memories of that. Oh, yeah, he was, yeah. he was, um, it was my decision of whether or not to stay in or get out. And he was, saw a lot of pros with either decision. So if I had stayed in, he was pretty happy about that. He would have been pretty happy with that. I got out. So we got, we got to come home and, and kind of start our life here. Um, it was, I know it was odd though. Um, and I know he was lonely while I was deployed. And reintegration is, is today it's become a big topic when you got out, uh, you know, it wasn't even a blip on the radar necessarily. I don't think we even had enough data to know what reintegration was looking like at the time. OEF, OEF, OND clinics didn't even stand up in the VAs until 2008, I don't think. So like... I think you were, you know, as a forward thinker, you know, you had your job and stuff like that. You had your family, you know, I can imagine those blunted a lot of the things, but like to whatever depth you're comfortable, what was your reintegration like? Um, I kind of, kind of two parts to it. When I, I first got home, um, I think I had a, probably an experience similar to a lot of people. I just kind of, um, disoriented and confused, I think would be the best way to say it. Um, just, just really disoriented, um. And that was, that was difficult, but at least I was with all my Marines and we all went together and like, you know, we all had this, we're all going through exactly the same thing and and that's, and that's okay. So that, but that was, that was challenging and it was a lot more difficult to come home than I thought it would be. Um, When we moved back to Wisconsin, I moved with my daughter and my husband stayed in California for another month. I bought a car, I bought a house. I started working full time. A couple minutes later, I got pregnant with our second daughter. Um, we, I just got kind of got, I just got busy, right. I was w- working crazy hours and then, um, cause I was working in a warehouse and a distribution center and I had two kids and then I went back to school to, to get a master's degree. Um, so I could be competitive with all my peers cause they were all getting their masters. And so were you in charge of people in your civilian role? Yeah, actually, I had a. It was surprisingly similar job to what I did in the Marine Corps. So I was leading a team of hourly warehouse workers. So was it like what was the big difference between having a bunch of Marines and then having a bunch of civilians? Um, what I found is that everybody was a lot nicer oh, in the civilian world, and there were no weapons. <laughs> so those were the two biggest changes. But I was I was actually pretty confused by the people being nice. I thought that they were faking it, uh, and it turns out no that's what they were they were being nice <laughs> well you're also, in the yeah also not yelling and so like hearing i had i had struggled i struggled hearing feedback because it wasn't being yelled at me 
So I was like, well, if you're not yelling at me, clearly I'm doing fine, right? <laughs> but that's actually not always the case. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I'm learning so much. I'm like, uh, sitting and, then, at here. <laughs> and then I also, I struggled, I struggled um, with like the, it didn't seem to me like what we were moving in the distribution center was quite as important as what I had been moving in the Marine Corps. Like if we don't get the trailer loaded full of stuff, it means that the store not, is not going to be able to sell as much this weekend when the ad goes on sale. And and I care about that. I really do. That's it's hard to care. A l- I really want to. <laughs> I, really, I, really want, <laughs> I really wanted to care a lot. Um and but, the, the but, volume, I'm sure the people they the people who worked in this place probably really intensely cared. They did as much as yes. you did with your marine, mission in the Marine Corps, and then you come back and it's there's a disconnect, like you said. There was, and I I really wanted to care, and I but I just it just didn't come across in my face that it didn't look like I cared, and part of that was just my demeanor of well okay you're so you're not yelling at me we're moving cartons of Tide laundry detergent like if the Tide is out can't you buy the all like what is the <laughs> But that's not that is not what they wanted to mm-hmm. hear. They wanted me to to expressly convey my enthusiasm, passion. my passion, yeah. and my in- for Tide pallets of Tide. It, very important, right? Did you just have very, to like fake it until you made it, or because I don't know how I would uh, like adjust that a, out? Yeah, you're making a face like you did some learning. I did a something. lot. Yeah, I did a lot of learning, and uh, I was I was. I was lucky enough to work with a group of people and for a company that um, was committed to to me as much as I was to them. So they were pretty helpful in in providing actual feedback and pulling me aside and saying, I know what you said in the meeting. What you probably should have said was this or um, what someone else said in the meeting is what they actually meant was. Um, and so I, I got some, some pretty good mentoring that I way. I feel like I ran into like two things where, A, I swore way too much. Uh, B, I was too blunt and direct. Like, you need to be softer about your approach. And you need yeah. to, like, and I'm like, but let me just say the thing that I need you to do, and then you do the thing, and then it's done. Right. So yeah. I, I didn't struggle with the first one because I just didn't swear all that much. Um, but the second one, absolutely. Yeah, so I was just far more direct than, than anybody was ever prepared for. Um, and then that's when I um, I started getting a ton of feedback, and that's where I started, like, recognizing the differences between men and women in leadership roles and what the, and the expectations are very different. Mm. And oh, I found, did, did you get called you? bossy? Yeah. I got called far worse than that. Nasty? Did they call you a bitch? They called you a bitch, didn't well, they? Yeah. That's what they call women yeah. in positions of power that are too... They. But... They. Yeah. I'd be like they Rocky will. with a flag behind me like that. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to wear this shit. Yeah, but, but again, I didn't have yeah. the same experience. But the thing is, like, in the in the Marine Corps, right, like... They actually didn't care if I was a woman. They just wanted me to be good at what I was doing. Yeah, that was that was far more important. God, but then, I, then I switched to being a you know being a civilian, and then the way you deliver the message is far more important. Oh, and mm-hmm. you've got all these these minute but, personality conflicts that you have to navigate as well. Like each person, you got to remember how you want to speak to them. Yeah, we're in the military. It's send the message. Be right. brief. Send the message. But, but the thing was, I wanted to be successful as a civilian. I wanted to be successful in a different leadership environment. And so I had to take the feedback and I had to be open to learning and I had to practice a whole bunch of different things. And, and, it sounds um, and like thankfully, you I was able to work with, again, work with people who, right, who wanted to help me with that. A supportive environment. Exactly. And yet, you know, and yet you're, you're a talented person, educated, in a supportive environment, motivated mm-hmm. to do well. 
and something's not, you know, there you're, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it feels like you're going through a lot of mixed emotions that you're processing and experiencing a lot of dissonance. Like things aren't landing the way you expect. Uh, yeah. You mentioned feelings of disorientation, you know, and that's and this is in a pretty good situation. Yeah. So yeah. how do you? Exactly. I just kind of kept fighting my way through it, and mm-hmm. I, um, I kind of focused on school and at. In my in my master's program, I ended up doing a project. Or I selected a project that was focused on. Um, it was at the recommendation of the general manager at where I was working. To I did a little bit of research on the veteran reintegration experience. So I focused on what can the question of what can companies do to support veterans as they make the transition from active duty military to a civilian career. What a healthy it's, way to deal with that. Like, mm, like yeah. it makes me wonder, like, I don't know if you saw that person as a mentor, but one of the positives I'd say out of the military is they've got, I think, a pretty stellar mentorship program just built into place. Good leadership overall. You're going to get the feedback. But, like, you come to the civilian world, and all of a sudden this person, it sounds like they get you, they maybe offer that thing. Was was that the most sage advice you've gotten, or maybe was the, what was the best piece of constructive criticism that you've gotten since coming back in and reintegrating? Yeah, so that was that was a, a great piece of advice because I was able to kind of dig into it a little bit more. Um, but that that same person, and then plus some of the other um, leaders there, really did help me practice having conversations with individuals to make sure that I could connect with each person individually, um, because that relationship is so very important. Um, and then you kind of build from from there. But that skill set is pretty valuable. But you don't. It's something I wasn't taught in the Marine Corps. Mm. Um, different communication different, strategies. Different. Yeah, it's just different. But then I, so I, I ended up getting my master's degree in project management and then uh, decided to, um, that I wanted to get a job in project management and leave operations management and move over to the project side of things. Um, so for that master's degree, was that something your civilian employer was uh, funding or did you use military benefits for that? Uh, military benefits. I would use the GI Bill. Federal or state? I don't know, but both. What's your home record? Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Yeah, so could could probably have some state GI Bill stuff. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Wisconsin has top-tier state veterans benefits. It's something like Texas, Vermont, Wisconsin, and then everybody else is tied for 50th, basically. Yeah. Like, they don't, they're not particularly interested. Yeah, I didn't, I, it worked out pretty well to use the, the GI Bill. Um yeah, so I ended up change, making a career change um, into project management and got into some IT infrastructure projects. And um, I've been doing that for, for several years. And then. Uh, You're currently a veteran advocate, and that manifests itself now as uh, connecting business resource groups and stuff like that through your current employer and amongst other employers locally, right? Yeah, yeah. I, um, the job I was at before this one, I started the Veterans Employee Resource Group for the company. And then through that, I got introduced to Team RWB and got involved with, with Team RWB in a leadership role. And then I'm part of the, the leadership team for the Veterans Group at my current employer. Um, so what's your experience been like interacting with other vets as you kind of find each other in the wider civilian space, I guess. Um, 
I've been enjoying it more in the past past several years. Um, there were a bunch of years where I just didn't. I met very few veterans. Um, I just the, there are a couple that I worked with at my job, but um, but not much beyond that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just I was not involved in any veteran service organizations or anything. Did um, you feel like a disconnect? Because I, I went through that too. There was a period where it was just like I just didn't meet any veterans, and I was I, like, this is strange. Yeah, I just didn't I just didn't meet any, and I had a, a couple negative experiences with with um, some older veterans who who insisted that there weren't any females in the Marine Corps. Oh, mm-hmm. dear Lord. And so I said, I'm just, you know, I'm just not having this conversation. Right, yeah, I, like, yeah, okay. We're, and I've got plenty to do. I've got, I've got three kids and, and a husband, and I'm working full-time, and, like, I don't need... To have this chat right I don't now. need to have this. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not having this conversation <laughs> with anybody, yeah. and I don't, I'm not having it. What um, happened to the connections from your peers on active duty? Um, they're they're great. So they're they're good friends. Um, we all kind of scattered, right? So was there a a lull, sort of in in being connected to those peers, or were you able to sort of maintain those lines of communication? Um, I was able to maintain with a couple of them because we went out to on family vacations out to California, and I got to see a couple of people out there. And uh, my brother is um, was on active duty at at some of the we had some overlap, and he's still in the Marine Corps, and so our I kind of follow, of course, his career. He worked with some of my friends, actually. Oh, that's neat. Um, and then, you know, Facebook it makes it easier to keep in contact with people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been fun meeting a lot of veterans in in the Madison area. Well, it sounds like it, you you came back and you got pretty satisfied in your work, but there was some challenges and and you took a break. But you you came back to some certain areas and like, what would you maybe say you 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 found as your mission? I think that a lot of veterans in your role and our roles and things like that is we can get back and we can kind of lose the sense of purpose or maybe lose the mission in life. So like, how do you feel like you, you, you reclaimed that for yourself? Yeah. So I actually, so a couple of years ago, I ended up having a lot of, um, I ended up having a lot of personal problems that were related to PTSD and they kind of popped up years after I'd come home and, um, I thought all was well. And, um, it's kind of like my brain had thought differently. So I, uh, Spent a bunch of time you know, working through a lot of that, and um, I'm feeling feeling better. And so now I kind of feel like I I know what deployment is like. I know what um, I know what it's like to come home. I know what it's like to 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 struggle with mental health problems like that. Um, and now I've got an obligation to to help other people. Says who? You know what I mean? I mean, like, who told you that? I, I think it's awesome. You know. <clears throat> I mean, if you if you have the answer and you're not sharing with somebody, you're probably wrong. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think that's yeah, just a characteristic of of the veteran community is that just because you get your DD two fourteen signed and whatever feelings you have to process that go along with that, that doesn't mean you're done serving. Right. You know, oddly enough. And it's yeah. it's not. I think it's less that like um, it doesn't mean that you're done, but. Good luck if you don't, you know, go try your life without it. Go try your life without feeding the beast inside of you that that needs to be fed in a lot of ways that like there's something that changes. I don't know if it's the people that choose to join. I don't know if it just happens to you when you're in service. But once you get out, you know, I remember the transition too, as far as like PTSD symptoms and how they, they were probably pretty present, but they were latent enough, you know, and it took me a while to recognize all that and, and get some some professional help and also kind of figure out 
how to help myself in those ways and, and find my mission and my purpose again. And, and I think that's, you know, where we all kind of come together and some of the different things that we're doing, but we're engaged. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 what I've, there are a couple of things that I figured out. Um, and, and one of them is that I went years and years and years without telling anybody anything. Um, I just couldn't figure out a way to have a conversation and explain to someone what I had done what it because it didn't relate to anything that they could ex- yeah. they could understand and then certainly I didn't want to I didn't want to burden my friends and family with what I had experienced because I didn't want them to have to carry that either um, but it turns out it's too much to carry alone but um, so those things started working their way out unbidden yeah so I yeah stopped sleeping and I couldn't stop thinking about deployment and I was having having flashbacks and um, what was the time frame like when was all that mm-hmm. when did you notice it you know for me I think it was about a, a year or a year and a half after getting out that I really started with I, it started to go from like this is okay to this is then I was like I gotta do something about this um, so I successfully ignored a lot of symptoms for a bunch of years, but um, it was 15 years after I got home Dang. that it was, um, I could, I was not, I was not doing well and something was not right. And so that's when I, um, I texted some friends from, from Team RWB, Will included, um, and Nick, and then uh, I said, I don't know what's going on, but something's not right. So I recall <clears throat> we had a book club and we were reading Sebastian Younger's Tribe. Oh, yeah, great read. <clears throat> yeah, and uh, we were discussing it as a group, and you had some really strong feelings about, you know, some of what was contained therein, I guess. And, and you know, even even now it's kind of elusive to me what it, what exactly got you so agitated, but do you, do you remember that? What's kind of your um, take from there? I felt like I'm trying to re- trying to remember exactly. He, I think he diagnosed the problem, but he did not prove his case in in the solution. Was my my opinion, and I was thinking about coming from um, a little bit of an academic perspective in that, just writing papers in college, but is what I mean by academic. But I don't think he proved his thesis that living in community after you come home from war is the is the healing process or that is best for for people I like the thesis I don't think he proved it um, and it really it, it really pissed me off that he never once mentioned women women mm. deployed um, oh yeah really Just not a single totally yeah it, was, thought, it wasn't part of his experience when he deployed yeah, right? so when he when he was embedded with another unit and he and, and that that bothered me um, he also never mentioned anything about the, the value of um, you know, personal faith or, or a belief in God is part of a, a, a part of the value of being in community. Um, that bothered me. But um, do you, do you pretty, remember anything else? Yeah. Well, uh, I remember, you know, having a number really in uh, really just sprawling sorts of rambling conversations with you that that moved my perspective on a lot of different things. I remember feeling upset after reading Tribe that. Uh, I just felt like there was this element of voyeurism that I that I'm like, you know, sure, maybe he accurately diagnosed the problem, like you said, but I'm like, this is an outsider. This is an outsider's perspective, and it and it has that feel to it. 
Uh, so when you when you express some consternation about what you found in that book, like you know, I was I was interested to learn more about your emotional reactions to it. Yeah, that was um, that was one one piece of the kind of the kind of what caused a whole bunch of problems to kind of unravel. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the the 15 year anniversary of the invasion was kind of was weighing on me. Um, people had posted some photos on on Facebook of some of the um, some of the firefights that were that were we were taking casualties for. Um, and I wasn't expecting to see that, um, and so I got all those things that I I had. Uh, to be honest, I was I was busy. Like I came home and I was busy, right? I got a job and I started having yeah. and went to back to school and was working and. Um, but I and and, uh, and when we were deployed, like all, the, you know, it's it's one thing to be a, it's one thing to be scared, and it's another thing to. Like that wasn't a useful feeling, so I pretended like it wasn't the case, right? Just to kind of ignored it, because it wasn't particularly valuable except that it helped keep us stay alert but so you're dealing with all this stuff many years after the fact as a civilian were you able to recognize right away that like these feelings and these sensations and your perceptions are misaligned with reality and inappropriate or was it was it it took me a long time to to figure it out and to um and you never really have like a big moment where you got in trouble or like lost a job or got arrested or like a relationship never blew up in your face. It was just it was just you, just it, you kind of dealing with these things uh, as right. as capably as you could, but privately. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very privately. And it and, and it, you know, I, I recall you uh, a conversation that we had and you were like, I can't tell what's real. And I'm like, well, that's, you know. Do you mean like feelings or what do you mean by that? Yeah, that was, it was dissonant. It, it didn't make sense to me that you were saying that because the Natalie I had known and we were probably like. We know each other for a couple of years by then. Yeah, but yeah, a year and a half or so into our friendship, I think. And, and like you've never been anything but a real solid kind of known quantity, you know, like just like, yep, reliable, consistent, professional, mature, you know, wise. Like, and you're like, I can't tell what's real. And I'm like, well, what am I gonna do? You know, like, like, why do you like? Great. How am I supposed to help? Like, I'm real. <laughs> but beyond that, I don't have anything for you. But yeah, that was. I mean, it it shook my confidence. I uh, I thought I had made it through deployment without getting any injuries. Mm-hmm. I thought I had made it through successfully, and that uh, and that was the end of it. And that mm-hmm. was. Um, so, are yeah. you wounded? Or are you healing? Or what? Yeah, healing. Yeah. Um, yeah, How's that I, going? It's ongoing? Ongoing. What do you yeah. do to sustain and promote that? Um, I started doing yoga that summer um, mm-hmm. at your invitation, which was... Um, Serendipitous because I needed a security blanket. <laughs> I'm not going there alone. You kidding me? <laughs> me? <laughs> you see these legs? <laughs> I once talked with our yoga instructor and she said, Why was everyone, what's everyone so afraid? I'm like, but what if you're mean? Yeah. And she goes, really? Like, no, seriously. Like, What if we don't yoga good enough? <laughs> right. So I started going to, to yoga was one thing. And I realized that doing that, that I could I could probably leave some of the things I'm carrying. I could probably leave them on the yoga mat. Hmm. And so I've been going there probably every week since then. Um, I started doing therapy at the vet center. 
Which is um, pretty valuable. That center is nice, right? Because they have a slightly different process where you don't necessarily have to be all hooked up with the VA paperwork, you know, so they can just like maybe be a little more accommodating for folks that are in a spot, but haven't done the clerical freaking burdensome. I think you just have to be combat vet or sexual trauma, I believe. And then you can go to the vet center. But I think you just show up with a DD-214 or something. Yeah. yeah. One of the big differences, you don't have to expose yourself necessarily to the whole medical system. Yep. That, like, uh, a big part of trauma and trauma healing is vulnerability. And, like, early on we fight off vulnerability, but really it's it's ironic in the idea that that's, you know, I'm going to preach a little bit, but that's the key to our healing is, is finding ways to be vulnerable and and find the line, you know, find out what is real and what isn't real and be able to maybe clarify that a bit. A point you brought up was, you know, I heard... You talked about when you got out of the military, if people weren't mean to you, it was difficult to process. And then when you finally decided to make, you got to the point where you're like, I don't like where this is going. You said, I don't know if this person's being mean to me. And it's, it's funny how far it slides across and, and how, how difficult it can be to, to adjust with PTSD or any, any other type of adjustment that we have to make and like how far we can kind of slide either direction. But then also how quickly and capably people can heal and recover and things like that, because it is treatable. It's a healable thing. It doesn't mean it goes away forever, but you just better equip yourself to manage what's going on and maybe confront it a bit and challenge it and make some sense of it. And well, I have to interject because as Natalie has done a good job explaining, she's a hard worker and she's a badass too. And it sounds like it's fun to give her a hard time because like, you know, logistician, this, that, and the other thing, like, successful female professional i like taking my jabs at you natalie but you're a badass hands down and yeah, uh agreed. like you're an ultra marathoner you've done so much cool stuff and it's like your mix is impressive you know is what i'm trying to say and and i'm glad that we're friends you know thanks, thanks. Uh, but I don't, I don't know if people are measured about you know how they get knocked down i think people are measured about how they recover and like hearing all these things where you're consistently pushing and challenging the status quo and, and driving and staying on mission and readjusting and things like that. I think that I would hope that people come out of this conversation inspired, you know, to hear your story, to hear your focus and being dedicated. I make a lot of jokes and things like that, but you know, that's my thing. But like, really you kind of set your targets on early on. You got in, you persisted through, you pushed, even when they tried to say, nah, we're kind of done. You said, no, 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 no. I still got use here. Come on, give me a chance here. You proved yourself. You get out in the civilian world and you're still on the fly working it out. Some good candid feedback that maybe saved you one of those negative things because another manager could have handled it differently. Mm-hmm. But continually, then all of a sudden you get to the point to where where a lot of us get to where it's like, ah, there's something's not still not right. And like it comes to the process of this book thing and whatnot. But what it really does is like, ironically, you know, he makes some different points in that book tribe, but within your tribe of people i would say you finally were able to kind of look at it and you felt safe enough to explore it in a way that maybe you hadn't before yeah no and i um kind of that that initial text out to to nick and will um i mean there were a couple things one i was i'd already talked to my husband um and he was supportive and 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 helpful and loving and all those things and also didn't know what to do um so when i texted them when i knew they would respond um when you knew they would respond, yeah. you you surrounded yourself with people that you just could count on. You could trust them. Right. It was going to, it was going to happen. Right. And then, so they made arrangements for me to, to meet for breakfast the next morning. And then, um, I almost canceled. Right. 
Is Almost, that... right? Well, we were 20 minutes late, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and if I recall correctly, it was like, eh, 14, 25 minutes late, whatever. But like the hall, one of the hallmark signs of, of, of PTSD outside of maybe some of the bigger things is like avoidance, you know? Yeah. Super I mean, effective it, coping strategy I, until... It right? works until it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's one of the things that Will said is like, yeah, but it's, uh, you can, you know, things only work until they don't. And then what? Um, so we had a, a real long conversation that day. Um, and then I um, made a phone call to the vet center and scheduled an appointment. And then um, they wouldn't leave me alone. It's kind of, <laughs> <laughs> it's also what happened. That makes sense. Yep. And there were a couple of points where I was like, I think I'm not going to do anything more. And they yeah. said, well, that's a terrible idea. So... <laughs> Not gonna, that's actually not okay. So you need to do something else. And um, so you're still yeah. still engaged in a lot of different efforts, you know, for yourself and for others. Yeah. Uh, is it too personal to ask like what kinds of feelings you're still dealing with? Um. Yeah. So I've got I've got problems sleeping. Um, I uh, I've got some just I guess general guilt about us being over there and. Um, but you're obviously proud of your service. But that I think that's where the disconnect comes, right? Proud of your service, proud of the work you did. But then when you sit back and start to look at the overall mission, it's like, ah, oh, yeah, I can't connect these two things right, right now. This this is hard for me to make sense of this. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think that we want to connect the dots naturally, especially as a, as a logistician. I think that you want to connect dots. You're somebody who wants to solve problems, solve puzzles, and that's the nature of the beast. Is that Sometimes PTSD, it's it's not a puzzle to be solved. There's good therapies around that. You know, you could do a lot of cognitive processing around those mm-hmm. events, but like something that's maybe attracting a little bit more attention lately is the idea of, of acceptance and that are we going to try to make sense of this or are we just going to say, okay, and just let it be what it is and be okay. We don't have to agree with it. We can just say, all right, that is that. That was my experience and okay, here we go. Is there, was yeah. there was either of those two routes that were a little bit you know better for you or or maybe what was your path in general terms like that to, to finding your way so um, some of it is was like just kind of acceptance that I had a I had a role to play and I and I mm. did my best yeah. and my my job was not to make those big decisions. It just wasn't my role. And even if it wanted to be my role, I can't be because that. I, it's funny how time works. Yeah. It's right. Weird. Um, so that that was part of it. And then uh, it's kind of acknowledging that to myself that um, that that what I experienced was. Was hard and and people shouldn't have to go to war. Yeah. Right. And I volunteered to go and I wanted to go and I was glad I was there and it was the right place for me to be. But um you know, I'm just kind of sorry they had to go through it, but. But it's interesting enough, but, something that, that you, we want, you wanted it, you know, we all joined for a reason. Um, you go into it and there's motivation towards it. And it's one of those things that, you know, maybe I'll ask you, would you ever give those experiences away and not have them? Of course not. No, <laughs> that's again, that's the nature of the beast is right. that we'd never change those for anything. But yet it's, 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 it's just that we, we're here. We're, we embrace the suffering a bit for what it is. Yeah, and you know, and I, I've suffered. I think, um, I think we in, in the room we probably all suffered. At, you know, with with aspects of it. Um, and it's and it's difficult to understand, and it's 
difficult to explain who, to someone who doesn't know. Um, but it's kind of fantastic when you find someone that knows what you're talking about. Yeah. And to be able to make that connection, it just, like, it really just feels like giving your pack to somebody else and let them carry it for a little yeah. while, you know? And they, I have found out that they will, right? So what's your, what's your plan moving forward? And what's your status as it relates to other vets now? Um, I feel like I am uniquely qualified to, to make a difference with, with veterans. Um, because I have had that experience of, um, of working through PTSD and, um, some of the, some of the treatment options that go along with it. Um, but I'm also, I'm able to connect with people, um, which I think is then, it's that's important to me too um so that be able to have one-on-one conversations with people um and be able to connect with people i think is is something i am able to do and the fact i have that combination of of things and a deployment experience um i feel like i am helping and i want to keep finding ways to to make a difference especially for for veterans i know we were talking earlier about um kind of generational changes right and so we went I think we all went to Iraq. Yeah. Um, a bunch of our friends also went to Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, there's a there's a place for us to be in, in leadership roles in, in a variety of different ways across the country, right? Either whether it's the veteran service organizations or in in our jobs, in academics, in, in politics. Like it's our, we've got some experiences to, to build off of. Yeah, I remember I was talking to a veteran the other day and, he kind of expressed that he was frustrated that civilians don't get it. And, um, you know, I kind of posed the question back. I was like, well, how do they get it? You know, who's responsible for that? Is it, is there a book that you can really surmise that stuff or, or is maybe part of our lifelong mission to help people understand our experience? And like, you know, are we angry or frustrated about it? Or do we try to do our best to, to share in that moment? Cause you know, I think when people say thank you for your service, sometimes it may be a su- superficial, but I think that, that's as that's as much as they know that they're doing as good as they can. I, I've said this to Will a million times. Like God bless them, they don't know, right? God it's bless like, them. Yeah, it's and that's sometimes. Their fault. And would you want them to know everything? I certainly do not want them to know everything mm-hmm. that I I experience because I just don't. That's just a. I just don't think it's a burden that everybody else should. It's a big learn. chunk of. It's a big aspect of the service that kind of goes unsaid. It's like, yeah, we were we're not gonna, we're not gonna pull back the curtain too far. But I'm I'm glad we've circled back to this point because earlier, Adam, you made the comment that like there's not a ton of data uh, around these sorts of issues, and I'm like, well, there sure could be, because this country was born in blood and battle, and every generation just about has gone and done their piece. So the reintegration experience is not unique to this generation, or the Gulf War generation, or the Vietnam generation. Um, and I get that that's a lot of turnover, you know, over long time spans to expect some sort of consistency. But if we're going to talk about reintegration things and improvement and how those things have changed over time, at least we can acknowledge the fact that there's a big old population, a big sample size that could be exploited and, and a ton of stories out there, a ton of lived experiences that can shape the next generation of warfighters and the next generation of returnees to have a little better landing or... Uh, a little more comfort when it's time, when it's their turn to share. Yeah. And to add to that, I think that like, 
it educates down, but I also think it validates up. It's, you know, Natalie mentioned 15 years before yeah. you, you kind of, before it came to be more than just something buried deep within. And, and there's a lot of generations over time that maybe haven't had their experience validated in those ways. And so I think that our hopes out of sharing these stories today is that, you know, I, I, I hope we didn't go, I know we didn't hear everything. I know that you kept some to yourself and I appreciate that. And, and those will be stories you'll, you'll keep to yourself and that's important. But I think that we did go to a depth, you know, we learned enough about your experience to where people can, can appreciate it and understand it and know it for what it is. Um, you know, I think you held a very unique position as like you talked about with some of the data that as a female first, then a female officer, then a female officer deploying, you know, that just adds layers of, of technicalities and other variables to the whole thing. And then I think that imagine the women that came before you and the women that will follow you and, and, and all the folks that'll go in and whatever the next war is that, that I hope that, that this stuff matters. This, this absolutely matters. And I watched, you know, Natalie operate as an excellent leader and peer mentor today, because there's another vet in crisis who we're both, you know, uh, we both have a friendly relationship with and, and, you know, it's just rotating into into that position. Like, okay, who's next? Somebody pulled you up. Yeah, exactly. Next man up. Next next vet up. That was a beautiful thing. If you had a, if you had the opportunity to send a time capsule or a message back to young Natalie, way back in the day before you walked in a recruiter's office, before they found out that you can't read the sign on the other side of the room, before you memorized I, the twenty twenty line, I knew that there was supposed to be a sign on the wall. I just couldn't couldn't see it. Ignorance is bliss. We did just discuss that. Which white blob am I supposed to read off of? And so, like at one point, he said, "Can you see the E?" And I said, "I don't." That's where you're gonna talk. Yes, I see an E. Like, do yourself a favor at that point. Come on. What uh, what's the message you'd send back to yourself? What it doesn't even have to be good advice. What would you say to yourself? Keep your head up, kid. You're gonna get through it. Yeah, just keep keep trying, and you're gonna get to where you want to be and doing what you want to be doing with the people you want to be with. That's awesome, Adam. It's like the the right room, finding the right room, you know. But um, darn. There's something else in like beyond the message to yourself, like what do you want to tell that vet, you know, is still or that soldier or marine or airman, whichever, still serving, contemplating serving, related to a service member, friends with a service member, having served a, a long time ago, but who might still be engaging with that stuff. What's what's your message to that person? It is it is an honor to serve and it is an honor it's an honor to lead um, and, and enjoy it, but but do your very best because we were, you know, don't pass up that opportunity. That's off. I, I've enjoyed getting to know you. You know, I'll admit I don't know you as, as good as well because of stuff. But even in just the time that we chatted tonight, I'll probably admittedly say I would have underestimated you as an enlisted person. That's fine. I would have I would have totally underestimated you. But I, hearing your story, I I promise you I would have followed you in the direction you led me. I promise you that. I think that hearing about your leadership, sticking to it, staying tight to it, you know, you, you made sure to maintain the standard. It, it was never about you. And uh, and I think that's that's invaluable when it comes to leadership, that it, it's not about you. Mission really does come first. And I think that could be hard as we transition to the civilian world when people are, are competing in different ways and there may be some, some competition in the military. 
but your selflessness continues and and you know i i would like to wish you all the best and thank you for coming on for episode one it's 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 a big show i think and that um you know when we started to talk about who we wanted to bring on i don't think you realize how many people mentioned your name first and that, that i joke around that like i'm over here looking around on facebook and stuff like that but every single road that i went down on saying who do we think we should bring in to talk met so many people were like you should talk to natalie and it was it was a matter of i think they respect your dedication i think that your commitment to it you know that your value system didn't leave when you chuck the uniform off that you're driving on and that all the struggles you know i hope that you get to the point whether you're there or not that you'll be able to to embrace it and cherish it and, and love it for what it is i appreciate it it's um i appreciate the chance to chat yeah thank you for telling your story thanks for the invitation fight or die fight or die
Yeah. 